Hello, and welcome to Sega Saturn Shiro, the only podcast that brings you into the real world in real time. On this episode, we have a ton of special surprises. One of the big ones out of the gate is a special guest joining us for the news. Nick, known as his YouTube handle, Pandemonium. Welcome, Nick. Thanks, Patrick. Thank you, gang. It's good to be on. It's good to be on the show. So I'm pretty excited to get started here. Yeah, no, it's great to have you on. I know that we're all massive fans of your work, and we definitely enjoy some of your videos that have to do with the Dreamcast as well, and lots of yelling (laughs) and burning discs, but you know. Right, and and the explosions, all that jazz. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Great video. Great video. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you. Glad you liked it. So, um... (laughs) Hope you learned a thing about burning Dreamcast games. I didn't. Anyways, (laughs) let's start with the news. Peter, did you want to kick us off? Well, sure thing. I mean, so first thing what I want to say is just thanks to all of our fans for celebrating our second anniversary with us. So we ended up being live throughout most of our second anniversary. We streamed just a a bucket load of games. We went through Metal Slug, Twinkle Star Sprites, Cotton 2, and that was all you, Pat. And you, you beat all three of those, didn't you? Um, I guess loosely. I played them on easy to beat them and just show the game off, so... I wouldn't consider it like a 1cc hardest difficulty combo extravaganza, but no, I wanted to show the games in full, so I played Metal Slug, I got to the end with 10 credits, and I died, and then I played the rest of it, I think I only used like 5 after that, so. Uh, We'll hold you to that 1cc for our third anniversary, so I think you're okay for now. I'll I'll get right on that. I know we also had, uh, Ben, you played Batman Forever. Uh, yeah, that was an interesting one for sure. And I did uh, Nights into Dreams. And, you know, I feel sort of poorly because I didn't exactly have a very professional setup. So I'm going to make sure that that's remedied for the next time that, that we do a, a streaming extravaganza. And over and above that, I know Kay also played some uh, Street Fighter Zero Three 3 and some Fire Pro Wrestling. And especially with Street Fighter Zero Three, 3 I know I learned a lot. It's one of Kay's favorite games, and he's pretty darn good at it, so... It was really impressive, and we had some uh, viewers that sort of followed us through all the streams, and so that was really encouraging to see. And so, yeah, I just uh, wanted to uh, say thanks to all of you that uh, listened to us for taking time out of your day to to celebrate with us. Another big event between our last cast and this one is that we took part in Sega's 20th Dreamcast anniversary celebration. So Pat and Ben did some Dreamcast streaming for the fans and uh, Sega was kind enough to tweet us out. So I know we picked up a good amount of viewers. Uh, Pat, Ben, how did you guys enjoy doing that? I thought it was really amazing that we actually got retweeted by Sega themselves. How sweet is that? You were saying that your phone was like blowing up and, you know, you were just, it was going crazy. Yeah, it basically uh, vibrated right off the table almost. Just notification after notification. I think at the end of it, we got like a couple hundred retweets, a ton of likes. It's insane. For for me, at the end of the day, you know, we're fans, uh, all of us here at Cheer, and we do the best that we can to put out a, uh, you know, a solid professional product. But at the end of the day, we're not... You know, we're not official, we're not professional, we're not, this is all volunteer on our behalf. And so, you know, to be recognized by Sega and to to be tweeted out and shouted out and featured on their uh, website, however briefly, it was still super special. And it's really good to see that Sega is paying attention to, first of all, their fans as well as their legacy. Letting some Saturns on fire, 
complete explosions. That'll be great. I'm already setting some M80s in my Saturn right now. <laughs> Watch them spark up. That'll be good. All right. Well, speaking of explosions, the Genesis Mini has actually just been released. It is the first Sega console since 1999. Even if it's just a micro console, you know, little uh, plug-and-play emulation systems. It was handled by M2, which is really renowned for a lot of their ports and their, um, I guess, their development. I guess one of the biggest examples, if you want to see their work, is watching the My Life in Gaming uh, documentary on them. I think it's like an hour documentary on them. It's really good. And it goes through all their games they worked on, you know, Gauntlets, uh, Battle Grega, things of that nature. A bunch of amazing ports. And while this, uh, this was well built to a point, it's a major issue that it had was the sound emulation where it was, it had a ton of latency on that sound emulation and some issues here and there. But for the most part, I've heard, I've seen that it's a pretty decent console. But it's uh, it's good for what it is, you know, a nice little emulation system, put it on your shelf. They have the little tower of power thing and the, yeah, so they have the, the Sega CD add-on and the 32X. Hmm, yeah, sweet. This goes back to Sega having Shiro on their actual social media pages and back to them paying attention to the fans. I noticed there were a lot of Sega YouTubers who got sent early releases uh, with the Tower of Power with little 32X and an assortment of different game copies, quote unquote. They weren't actually games, but some people got Sonic 2. I think someone else got like a little plastic Golden Axe cartridge. And uh, I think they they really did start paying attention to the fans with that, starting to send that out to people. Granted, it's it's the obvious PR scheme. They want people to give them good reviews. They want the YouTubers to give it good reviews. And they hope that sending it out early will help that. But it's still really nice that they're doing that at all, though, that they're actually caring about kind of the... And th- these aren't like giant YouTubers either. These are some of the smaller guys, too. So, Yeah, and I'll say the Lord X got one some of the other guys got one, but it's just that sort of smaller crowd. I think Adam got one too, Adam Korlick. Oh, nice. Three would have, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I, I think the coolest thing, though, is that's compatible with the RetroBit USB controllers. And I'm not sure if I tested it, but I wonder if it's compatible with the wireless, the 8-bit Doe controllers. So I don't know from personal experience because all I've got, I've got a couple of the uh, Genesis Mini consoles. And I do have a couple of the uh, USB RetroBit controllers, and they work beautifully. In, in fact, the Saturn ones will work on the uh, Genesis as well. But I'm not sure that any other brand will work, even though they may be USB. And, uh, you know, don't quote me on that. That's just, I think what I've been sort of seeing and hearing on the internet is, is it just RetroBit? But, you know, I could be wrong, so... I, I just pulled up an a article by 8BitDo, and it's a... I think it's a pre-order right now, but they actually have adapters for the Genesis Mini and the Genesis. It's it looks like it's releasing on October 18th for 25 bucks. It's a, their M30 2.4 gigahertz controller. Okay. So yeah, I guess it is. So nice. So if you want to play wirelessly and have one of the best controllers for the Saturn, I definitely would go for it. And hopefully this means a Saturn Mini's on the horizon. Dare I say it? I know it's probably unlikely, but. Bandai is releasing a two-fifth scale model kit of the Saturn. And uh, this news just came out very recently. The model number is the HST3200, and it basically comes with a controller, and it looks adorable. It's hard to tell the sizing from uh, what I'm looking at on the picture here, but this thing looks really neat. They also have a PlayStation model that you can get as well. Ugh, why would you get that? They'll probably make it cheaper too, probably like $2.99 or something. (laughs) 
I wonder if they'll have the announcer just come up to the stage and just yeah. announce just the price only, and that's it. And then, like, and like six months later, it's uh, we were discontinuing the Sega Saturn version. Uh, the Saturn is not our future. <laughs> well, these things look cute. These things look like something that you would want to have on your desk, and they're very inexpensive at approximately $23. So um, you can certainly bet that I know I'm going to be getting one. Yeah, I'm surprised, like, the attentional detail. I mean, they have the controller ports, they have the circuit boards, the disk drive. They even oh, have yeah. the PSU with all the caps on it. It's like, whoa. It's really detailed. It really is, and uh, it's it almost makes you wonder if it could actually play discs if they made them that small. So, Nick, do you want to talk about the uh, XL2? Yeah, sure. I, I heard that you played that a little bit. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so this is the demo of XL2's first-person shooter engine. And it's kind of funny timing. I recently started Power Slave for the first time, and I noticed that XL2 has a, a bunch of assets from Power Slave thrown in there, and the, it plays really well. It has a very similar control scheme to Power Slave, so you're from, if you're familiar with that, that's what the control scheme is. It's pretty much that. You hold X to move, to look up or down, and in Doom fashion, if you shoot like just above something, you'll probably still hit the guy because... It's not. It doesn't give you the precision of a keyboard and mouse since it's on a fifth gen console. But it plays really well. I didn't notice any slowdown. It's really slick. Everything loads well. You can see things pretty far out there. Didn't really notice any draw distance problems, which I mean, it's all in small rooms right now, so that makes sense. But it plays pretty great, and um, really like the grenades they put in there. Uh, they like bounce on the ground a little bit and release some smoke that you, you can you can hear the bad guys like kind of not having a good time with whatever golden dust comes out of the little grenades before they explode and kill him. So, uh, what kind of control system is that? Do they use the uh, shoulder strafing? Yeah, shoulder strafing. So it's it's exactly like in Exhumed or Power Slave. It's tank controls. So you you move in turn with the D-pad, strafe with uh, L and R. Um, and if I remember correctly, uh, it's easier if I have the controller in my hands while playing it. But I'm pretty sure like A is shoot, B is jump, C would be whatever button it would be for opening doors and other actions like that y and z scroll through your weapons and then holding x lets you look up or down and then if you want to go back to default view you just quickly tap x and it snaps right back into default view crazy that's how we played games back in the day i can't really remember the first person shooters i know i can't imagine playing them nowadays like that it's different, yeah. If you're if you're not used to tank controls, if it's been a while since you played those games, it might be a little little hard to get used to. But the control scheme that XL2 is using is probably the best control scheme for Saturn first-person shooters. It works really well, and it's it's fast and slick. So yeah, two playable levels in it. You literally you start. You can collect weapons along the way, and as soon as you kill all the bad guys, there's like an enemy counter in the upper left screen, and once it goes to zero, it just fades to black, puts you in the second level. And uh, you can't pause yet. If you press start, you die. So that's kind of a fun <laughs> fun thing there. Is it like one of those like uh, kill button if you get stuck? I think so. Yeah, for, I guess for testing purposes, that's probably why it's the way it is. But yeah, I tried pausing it and then my guy died. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> what? It's, it's really good, though. Uh, really good use of the Saturn hardware. Uh, the bad guys are 3D polygons. They're not sprites like in Doom. So that's kind of neat. Uh, it's really promising stuff, and that combined with having played his Sonic game from earlier this year, really promising stuff coming out of XL2, and uh, I'm excited to see what full games they make here in the future. So they're, they're going to be good based on the engines so far. Really, really promising engines. Can't wait for Half-Life 2 on Saturn. <laughs> exactly, right? 
<laughs> I gave this game a try as well, and I mean, you know, just to echo what Nick is saying, I mean, this game moves scandalously fast. That frame rate is just super solid, and you know, the lighting effects are amazing. The uh, textures. I know that XL2 currently is using assets from Power Slave, Quake. I don't know about Duke Nukem, but he's definitely you know pulled some art assets out of existing Saturn games. But the, it just looks super good. And in reading a little bit about how he's done it, he's at the point now where he is no longer using the Sega graphics libraries because he's finding them to slow his code down too much, which is insane because they're, of course, intended to streamline things. And so he's really coding directly to the architecture. So so he's using full um, assembly code to do that versus the libraries they give him? Absolutely. So, so that's why he's being able to squeeze that much power out of it. I mean, in the last build, it's even possible to play two-player split-screen and you know, right. the frame rate remains uh, relatively solid, and you, you can still see multiple 3D enemies on the screen. And, like, that's phenomenal. I, I don't know that any commercial Saturn game actually ever achieved that level of sophistication in terms of a first person shooter. So, I am super excited to see what else he's going to cook up. The, the two-player deathmatch ability with his build is really promising for sure because I don't think there are a ton of Saturn games, Saturn first-person shooters that have multiplayer. I can't really remember any. Right. I mean, aside from, you know, like the Netlink Duke Nukem, right. you know, but, but split-screen, I don't know that it exists for a first-person shooter. So, you know... Not as far as I can recall, no. Right. So kudos, no. kudos to him, you know. Alright, so... Uh... Why don't we move on to the, uh, the one of the biggest news articles I thought was really interesting was uh, uh, Forever Entertainment, who we interviewed on a previous podcast. Actually, I think it's the, the last podcast we did, has announced House of the Dead 1 and 2 remakes for the Nintendo Switch, which I thought was really interesting. And it came out of left field because when we interviewed Benjamin from Forever Entertainment, he didn't mention anything about that, any allusion to that. Unfortunately, there was a little bit of negativity with that on the articles we posted that it was on Nintendo Switch, which kind of bummed me out a little bit. Well, I feel like the Nintendo Switch is the best place for it to be on this uh, console generation. No, I agree. It's the last console with any personality. That's kind of one thing Sega had down is their consoles had like a, a sense of personality to them. And with the newer ones, feel like PS4 and Xbox One, like, yeah, they got their exclusives, but they're kind of glorified PCs now. The Switch is sort of the last, the last one to have any any sort of personality to it. So I think it's the right one too. Yeah, I mean, the well, I guess I could kind of see it working on the PS4 with the touchpad and that sensor. I just really couldn't see it working on the Xbox One. But the Switch with the little uh, Joy Cons is probably one of the best fits for it. But I know, I guess people get at this day and age, people are still doing the whole console wars thing, even though it's like kind of cliche at this point, right? And the other advantage with the Switch is you've got the, you know, the home console as well as the portability. So you've got it in both worlds there. But yeah, I'm pretty excited for it. I loved House of the Dead 1 and 2 growing up. Some of my favorite arcade games of all time. So I'm really excited to see them coming to the Switch. And hopefully, maybe they'll get ported. I know... When we were talking to Benjamin, they said it's not really that easy to sort of port them over, and the Switch gave them the, I guess, the resources he needed for the, they needed for the uh, Panzer Dragoon, and maybe it's the same deal with uh, House of the Dead One and Two. It makes you kind of wonder what other Saturn games we could see coming to the Switch. 
Well, precisely, and I was just going to comment that it really seems like Sega has taken stock of their legacy IPs, and especially on the Switch, there's a huge market for retro games now, and Sega's got such a rich back catalog. And so for them to be capitalizing on it, that's just awesome news for, you know, for their fans. It's a smart move. The Switch really has been the console for retro games lately. Like, mm-hmm. you think of uh, Ikaruga, all the Neo Geo titles they've ported to it, and of course the re-releases like Panzer Dragoon. Yeah, it's this is definitely the, the right console for it. And of course, with being able to actually point and shoot stuff with the controllers, that's that's certainly a plus. Yeah, they didn't drop any news besides the fact that they're working on it. No screenshots, no video, but we're probably going to see it sometime next year or maybe early next the year after, 2021. Hold on, and uh, yeah, uh, we'll keep you updated as the news comes in. Uh, speaking of news with these games, uh, we always need a way to control the games, and uh, some of these Saturn controls that we've been using on the original equipment are getting old. And um, Retrobit has stepped in and created some fantastic controllers for the Saturn and a USB counterpart to play on your computer if you have like an emulator or whatnot. But now Retrobit is releasing wireless Saturn controllers as well as Genesis controllers, and they're slated to come out in November. These will both feature the original port and USB dongles. Uh, They come in a clear blue and a slate gray. These will be on pre-order from Castlemania Games. And uh, we'll review these about a month prior to the release, courtesy, obviously, of our friends at Retrobit. And uh, these um, controllers will come in a 2.4 gigahertz wireless signal as well as a Bluetooth. And there's a, a little bit of confusion to some people whether or not they need to get one versus the other. And uh, really what it all comes down to is... If you have a lot of the 8-bit do adapters, you want to make sure to get the Bluetooth version because you can tie it to the 8-bit do. And then the 2.4 gigs specifically are for the Saturn itself. They're for the Sega Genesis Mini. It's for the PC, the PS3, and the Switch. Now, the, um, the Bluetooth version is compatible with Steam, the PC and the Mac, Android, and the Switch. Uh, so you've got a little bit of a different variation on what they're compatible with. I've ordered a Genesis version, and um, it comes with a adapter that it is tied specifically for. Uh, so that's that one, though. So it may be different for these releases coming out uh, from Retrobit. Because the um, the one that I have for the Genesis is actually an 8-bit do one, and uh, but it's the 2.4 gig version of that, not their Bluetooth version. So I imagine that the, uh, the Retrobits will follow kind of the same format. I gotcha. Yeah, so I'm definitely excited. It would definitely be a great controller for a workbench testing and like the Anna streams. Yeah, the Anime Stream Saturdays. And once again, these will be licensed from Sega, just like the uh, wired ones. So here we go. And, you know, another piece of licensed Sega hardware. In this case, it'll be wireless controllers. So that's just, it's really exciting. Super awesome. Speaking of super awesome, one thing that Kay uh, demoed just shortly after our, our two year anniversary is an automatic real-time translation service. So if you're playing a Japanese Saturn game, and at the moment, you know, you can only do this in an emulator, but the service will actually translate the uh, Japanese text for you uh, on the go. Now, I've personally not tried this. It's Kay that sort of gave it a go, and unfortunately, he's not with us right at this moment to give his opinion on it. But we're at the point now where we're getting these kinds of technologies available to us, 
then I, that can only mean that you know there's going to be even greater ability to access those uh, text-heavy Japanese titles. So really, the Japanese uh, Saturn library is going to be opening up even more for us uh, non-Japanese speakers. So just just a super awesome development. Have you have any of you guys uh, tested this service out? Not yet, but I've told myself I'm going to try playing Arcana Strikes with it before the end of the year. I don't know if it's good or not, but it looks really cool. It's like a really art-heavy sort of RPG trading card game for the Saturn. And, of course, it never got translated or ported, and it's relatively obscure and obscure enough to where I don't think there's anyone working on a translation patch. But I might go ahead and try that out with the with the service and see if it's playable, see if I can get a legitimate feel for what playing it is like if I were to speak its native language. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm super pumped. I can finally play all those dating sims. I mean, um, oh, hell awesome yeah. <laughs> RPGs on the Saturn and, and Japanese, yeah. It's, it's going to be cool. I'll be able to fight monsters, date uh, Kagome, I mean, um, fight other <laughs> creatures adventures and stuff like that yeah it's gonna be sweet i know on my end i'm really looking forward to actually playing the game virus again that i streamed a few months back and i couldn't even get out of my bedroom because i couldn't read or understand what i was trying to do so it would be really interesting to be able to understand what i'm looking at and being able to move forward with the game your stream kind of sounds like me when i get up in the morning sometimes i don't know what's going on i can't enter exit my my bedroom Slapperhead. Are we gonna do a, a dating sim stream with this new translation service? Ooh, I'd be down. Oh, I'm, I'm. Do- yes, I will order some games up right now, and uh, we will do this. This, this will be amazing. Sweet. Not to be denied. <laughs> yes. Dating sim Saturday. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. All right. So, a downloadable and playable version of the Star Wars Rebel Strike beta dropped uh, just a few weeks ago. And this is really exciting stuff. There were a lot of Saturn games that didn't make it. Many of them weren't brought over to the States. Many of them weren't released at all. And this is one of them. Uh, It's kind of a crime that the Saturn never actually got a Star Wars game. It's one of the few consoles that just straight up doesn't have one. And they were going to make one. They were going to make Star Wars Rebel Strike, but some somewhere down the line they they didn't. But now finally, you can you can download and play a Sega Saturn Star Wars game. It's not a fully done game. It's just a beta, but it's still kind of exciting stuff. So it's it just has one level. It's more of like a demo level, and you play on a speeder bike on what I can only assume is Endor. It's it's a forest planet, and you're playing on a speeder bike fighting uh, things that sort of look like stormtroopers. If you go up and look at the enemies, they're not actually stormtroopers or the scout troopers you see on Endor. They look like something else, so I don't know if they had the license yet or if they were just toying around with it, but it plays really well. So the demo drops you in. It's a big, giant map. The first half of it has a bunch of enemies and trees and stuff. You start out with uh, a bunch of sub-weapons, like there's there's some grenades, some missiles, there's a flamethrower that's really fun. You can like set the trees and stuff on fire with it. Awesome. Yeah, it's it's pretty slick, and if you set the bad guys on fire with the flamethrower, they like actually catch on fire and run around flailing their arms in the air. It's great. <laughs> Someone should really change the models to Ewoks, and it would perfect <laughs> therapy for, for, episode, for, uh, for uh, Je- Return of the Jedi. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but it runs super, super well. There were no slowdown issues that I encountered at all. 
and the controls for the speeder bike work really well. You strafe with L and R. It's, it's the same type of tank controls you'd be used to. And the draw distance goes out sort of far, but not like as far as people would like it to. It's far enough, though. And what helps is there's sort of like in Virtua Cop, there's like a spinning green reticles that will point out enemies. And that sort of cuts through the fog pretty well. So with that, you don't really notice draw distance to be a problem. And it's far enough to where you can see obstacles and have enough time to get your reflexes in to dodge trees and jump over bumps and stuff like that. It's a really well done engine. Uh, Once you get through the enemies in the first half, the second half is just a bunch of map that you can just speed bike around. No sound effects, no music. It's a very quiet beta, but it's playable and it it runs really well. It just makes you think what the game could have been. And it's Star Wars! Exactly. Right. Yeah. Like, finally a Star Wars game on the Saturn. The, uh, I, I saw that on uh, the, the Shiro Twitter account tweeted out what appears to be a rough plot line or premise for the game. And if they had finished this, uh, it would have been you being dropped into the forest mood of Endor to accomplish a suicide mission of destroying the shield generator for their new Death Star. You have Ewok spy buddies, and you're supposed to, like, rescue Ewoks. This isn't in the actual beta. This is just on um, on a design pamphlet or sheet of paper. Oh, design, design doc, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And They're kind of weird. It sounds roughly the story to uh, Rogue One. I know. I was just going to say that. It's very... It, it has a lot of parallels to it. Um, but oh, yeah, I, it... I can I cannot get past the espionage Ewoks. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you don't That's like Ewoks? Guys? They're small, man. They can <laughs> crawl into small places and... I'm I'm just imagining the Ewoks like a, a Mission Impossible Tom Cruise going into the lasers, dun 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 dun, and this little <laughs> chubby Ewok in the in that tight suit. But yeah, so you have you have Ewok spy buddies, or at least you were going to if they'd finished the game. But yeah, the the beta is uh, definitely downloaded if you get the chance. It's very easy to burn. It comes in a bunch of different formats. Yeah, fire it up an emulator, burn it, play it on real hardware. Works either way. All right, so in Polymega news, uh, for those of guys who have been keeping up, Polymega now claims that they have 99.5% game support with less than 40 of the obscure games at 100% compatibility status. Now, uh, the ones that are in the uh, less than compatible state, they haven't really released a list yet. They told us that they would give us one when it's a little closer to release date, and I'm pretty sure that's because they want to work on those games to try to get as much compatibility as possible. And so they don't want to drop the games list of here's the ones we're having trouble with or here's the ones that don't jive very well just so they have a little bit of extra time to work on them. Aside from that, so for those of you that don't know, the Polymega is going to be a system that's going to basically allow you to pop in some Sega Saturn discs into the unit and you can play them off the disc. This is very unique in the case that it's different because you can hook a a unit that actually plays the physical media up to a newer style uh, entertainment system. The only way you can do that right now is basically hooking your Sega Saturn up through several adapters to HDMI converters, and then you put it on your big screen. Or you can use a emulator on the computer, but then you're not using the physical media. It's a little bit of a different way to play, but Uh, It's really exciting to see what Polymega is doing, and we're going to be one of the first to have our hands on it now. We'll let you know how it goes. Yeah, I I was definitely skeptical at first about it. I mean, I know you and I played it a little bit at E3 and 18, right, Ben? Uh, That's correct, yeah. Yeah, and I don't know how much it's changed since then. I know they only really were showing off the TurboGrafx-16 for the most part, the 
and the TurboGrafx CD. But um, while it's really not for me, especially with the Mister, and you know, just playing on regular hardware, uh, I imagine it's going to be great for people that don't have that stuff and kind of want to play it on a little bit more reliable system. And if it plays it well and a good frame rate, and you know, runs pretty well, I mean, that'd be pretty cool, especially. Since Saturn, for some people, is a little bit tricky to get working, and it makes me wonder what those that small forty games are that they can't get working. Only thing that really comes to mind is maybe, maybe some of the obscure uh, karaoke ones or something. Yeah, see, I was thinking along the lines of uh, maybe like the Mahjong or some of those dating sims that uh, we've mentioned. Because there were so many of those that came out for the Saturn in Japan, but I guess we'll find out when we get a little closer to it, and we'll even get a better understanding of who this is most suitable for. All right, so uh, that is our news for today. That's that's it. All right, for this cast, we have a special guest for you, Mr. Dave Warhol from Realtime Associates. Welcome on the cast, Dave, and thank you for spending some time with us today. Yeah, absolutely. I'm delighted to be here. I, I really uh, enjoy the fact that people are interested in this era of gaming, and I'm always delighted to participate any way I can to shed some light on the matter. Yeah, thank you. So can you, uh, before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself for those that don't know who you are? Sure. Uh, well... I started uh, uh, my career at Mattel Electronics back on the Intellivision console. Uh, there were a handful, maybe 30 or 40 programmers on that working for Mattel Electronics. And um, I did a couple of games and uh, managed a couple of games. And I did a lot of music and uh, sounds for other games. Uh, the first game I released was called Mind Strike. It was slated for the ECS, the, uh, the computer keyboard peripheral for the Intellivision. So it didn't get that wide distribution. Uh, and shortly thereafter, Mattel went out of business, but this uh, uh, group from Mattel uh, called INTV Corp., uh, the marketing professional there, uh, bought out the product line. And a couple of years later, I started producing and television cartridges uh, for them. And with them as the publisher, we produced probably 20, 25 new games for the Intellivision. That's where I got started. And then I did a lot of work on music and sounds for other companies like Lucasfilm Games and Electronic Arts and Interplay. So I was able to explore a lot of different computer architectures. And I would say in the late 1980s, formally founded Real-Time Associates, which was my own studio to develop video games. At the time, the 8-bit Nintendo was just becoming popular. We reverse engineered that and started offering our services to U.S. publishers that wanted to get into the game market. There weren't a lot of people doing cartridge or console games in the States at that time, so it was a rapidly growing uh, business. And uh, within a few years, I had hired uh, as many as 100 uh, developers, artists, uh, programmers, many of whom uh, worked at Mattel, and I was able to uh, give them a new home. And then, uh, honestly, uh, Real-Time Associates became known as the University of Real-Time because... We were able to take people with little or no game development background and in very short order make them productive members of the game development community. Uh, we did a lot of work for the 16-bit Nintendo, uh, Genesis, uh, pretty much all the platforms. I say all the platforms except for the Jaguar. I think it's the only one we didn't publish on. Probably for uh, the best. <laughs> yeah. 
and uh, did a lot of uh, comic license or cartoon license games. Did a Beavis and Butthead game, uh, Ren and Stimpy, stuff like that, real monsters. We became known for side-scrollers, did a lot of those. And then eventually got in with Sega, and there we did a Barney the Dinosaur game for the Genesis. But uh, in, uh, in getting to know the guys at Sega, we built a strong relationship, uh, which put us on what they called the Tiger Team. Uh, there were six developers that they kicked off a year before the Saturn was launched, and we were one of those developers uh, and had the opportunity to start on the Saturn, uh, at least very close quarters with them. That's 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 a pretty amazing background. I mean, I, might, I imagine you must have some really interesting stories with uh, Keith Robinson. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, Keith. Uh, oh, we did collaborate with Keith on his game, uh, Normie's Beach Babo-Rama. We were the developer on that. And, and oh that was gosh. hilarious. That was hilarious because uh, Keith is a cartoonist and he was distributed by Universal Press Syndicate that did Calvin and Hobbes and Doonesbury and a lot of really primetime cartoon strips. So uh, Electronic Arts thought they saw in Keith that maybe he'd be one of these up and comers and signed him up to do a, a game based on his cartoon strip. Now, interestingly enough, I appear as a character in his cartoon strip whenever he needed a technology guy or a computer nerd or something like that. He had a cartoon character based on my likeness that was in his cartoon strip. And because we were developing a game based on his cartoon strip, and I appeared in his cartoon strip, I appeared in a game we were producing, but I appeared as a character in in his cartoon strip. I was the boss on, uh, I don't know, the third or the fourth level. You had to beat me playing a game of Pong in the, You're gonna in the game. You're going to have to send us a picture of that, and we'll have that on the as a podcast <laughs> thumbnail. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I actually, I actually didn't know there was a cartoonist named Keith Robinson. I was mostly, I think I was referring to the Keith Robinson behind in television. Yes, yeah, he, um, he, uh, the same guy. Uh, he was a cartoonist as well as uh, doing. He, um, he did a weekly cartoon strip that was syndicated by Universal Press Syndicate at the same time as he was promoting all of the in television uh, back catalog. Absolutely, wow, that's, yeah. that's wild. I did not even know that. <laughs> yeah yeah and i would say um yeah he was he's a proud achiever on on both fronts he'll yes he'll definitely be sorely missed yes so that's uh yeah that's that's pretty much real-time associates up to the point in time that we were working on the sega saturn and uh after that we we continued to develop for other consoles and, and all of that as the as the video game industry became more hardcore games we like to be the light-hearted cartoon stuff when the newer consoles would come out, uh, we weren't finding a lot of work on it. It would it, those would require people to be, you know, doing first-person shooters or military sims and things like that. So we we ended up kind of moving out of that business and into some other specialized development areas. What was it like developing games in the '90s in general prior to the uh, video game industry becoming as big as it is today? Well, there was a lot of exploration, both in technology and in and in designs. Uh, there wasn't, there was no way you could take a course to learn how to develop it. They weren't teaching these things in classes, and they didn't have a lot of books. So it was a lot of um, hands-on exploration. Uh, we would also make our own tools and our own engines. So a big part of the development path was coming up with level editors or graphic editors of our own device, as well as the the tools that would take things from the editors and compress them into uh, ways to make them fit into ROMs. Of course, at, at that time, because memory was so limited in the ROMs, a lot of the 
game design had to be managed around how limited the space was in the in the cartridges. Uh, so, but coming from the Intellivision, where we had games that were only 4K, 8K, or 12K uh, bytes, uh, I think that gave us a unique perspective and a and kind of a heads up. A lot of people who were developing computer games at the time had a lot more memory and it was a little harder for them to make the transition from computer games into consoles where the resources were so limited uh, but having come from a background of consoles i think that's one of the things that gave real-time associates its a market advantage at the time was that uh, we we started off working in that format rather than trying to adapt to it after the fact now, as you had mentioned, Realtime Associates produced for multiple console systems. And I was curious, uh, what systems were the easiest to work with and which were the most difficult and what really made the difference? And you don't have to list every single one of them, like mm-hmm. uh, the architecture of the Jaguar versus the Saturn versus, but uh, <laughs> as, <laughs> as a, a general question, what can you state about those? Well, once becoming familiar with the 8-bit Nintendo format, that was a pretty easy format to work with. The, uh, I want to say the 16-bit Nintendo had a lot of more obscure graphics modes and microprocessor addressing modes. Genesis was pretty straightforward, I got to say. But we were also, we were writing an assembly language at the time. Everything was for the Genesis 68000 for uh, 6502 or 65816 for those. So once we got our tools adapted to, uh, our tools and our engine adapted to any particular console, then it was only as difficult as developing in our own tools, which we had a lot of familiarity with. So we were able to uh, jump onto new systems pretty easily. Yeah, I always give props to people that worked with assembly back in the day. I currently work as a programmer doing, you know, higher level languages, but those programmers that worked and dug in assembly, it's like major props to the the true amazing programmers of this uh, world. I think there's a a ratio that I, I started to advocate, and it has to do with the size of a cartridge and the amount of the number of hours destined for gameplay. Right. If you think about it, if we had a, an Intellivision cartridge that was 4K or 8K, but we still expected 20 to 30 hours of gameplay out of it, as the cartridges got bigger, 128K, 256K, maybe Genesis, you start getting half a, a megabyte, but you still expected them to be about 12 to 20 hours of playtime. And if you continue that memory, the, the rise in memory up to the games that you've got four gigabytes now on a, on a PlayStation 4 game, say a single DVD. But if you're still expecting the same amount of playtime, uh, there's this ratio between how much time is spent per byte of code or per byte of cartridge. And perhaps for your podcast, I can dig the chart out, but it's something like when you're writing in a limited system, each byte of code represents four minutes of gameplay. Uh, whereas in, in one of these larger ones, you've got a meg and a half uh, of, of memory that might represent four minutes of gameplay. So it was uh, making the most out of the least, I want to say. Wow. I had never heard of the people measuring games in that nature. I couldn't imagine that same amount of measurement for something like a, a 40 gigabyte or 80 gigabyte game that's now on some of these discs and some of these games that are out there. But, you know... Sure. But yeah, those games you might be expected to play 100 or 200 hours or like I have an EverQuest character with three months of playtime on it by the time I was <laughs> done. So yeah, but there's a there's a ratio to the, the size of the asset and the, and the amount of time to play. All right. So general question for you. 
what is your all-time favorite development story? Ah, gosh. Um, I might even have to say it was Bug for the Saturn. Uh, I would say that's when we achieved the most notoriety in the industry at that time. But uh, Sega signed us up, like I said, part of the Tiger team. And we were supposed to be developing a Sonic the Hedgehog game for Sega of, of America. So we signed our contract and we we're like, wow, we're going to do a launch Sonic the Hedgehog title for the Saturn. Wait, what? Yeah, that, that's how we were originally contracted. If you go back and read the contract, it was to do that. I can tell you right now, David, like all of our like mouths just dropped. We're all in different <laughs> states. And I can tell you, like, yeah, I, everybody's I, mouth just went, wait, what? Because this is because and this isn't Sonic Extreme. This is a, a whole entire different sonic game right yeah it was it was going to be an original sonic for the saturn using 3d graphics and and all of that now here's the thing is that as soon as the ink was dry on the contract and we we're getting ready to develop it sega of japan heard that sega of america signed somebody up to do a sonic game and they were like no 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 so uh here we were with a full-on contract to develop a game for Sega on the Saturn, and we weren't allowed to use Sonic. So there were a couple of weeks there where Sega was scrambling up. We didn't want them to cancel the contract or anything like that. So we had been toying with the idea of doing this game for the Genesis called Bug, and we had some, some concept art sketches going back and forth. And um, at the time, Sega was wondering, well, geez, what... What character should we use for this game? We can't use Sonic, so what should we use? And we presented, hey, let's make this game be about Bug. And um, sure enough, they, uh, our producer there, Steve Apoor, loved the idea, and he went to the map for us inside Sega. First of all, he said, well, the, the character is original enough, that's great. But his other point was, by letting these guys do something of their own design and their own device, they're going to be really jazzed about it, so let's let them develop this because they'll be in love with it as opposed to us giving them another license that they'll have to use. And the managers inside uh, Sega said, sure, sure thing. So the game mechanics were similar to what we were planning for the Sonic game, but the, you know, the whole character and art style and ultimately the gameplay what became our own device. So, you know, as for the hundred or so games that we've worked on and released, I got to say that's coincidentally got to be one of my favorites. That's that's a wild story. That's yeah, that's amazing. amazing. <laughs> We're all yeah, like, I'm, we had a, a side chat going. Like I told you about our, for our technical <laughs> stuff, uh -huh. and we like not only collectively did we all go wow, and I can imagine us saying that, but we also literally started saying like wow in the side chat because none of us had it could possibly have imagined <laughs> a piece of news like that. You know, <laughs> well, yeah, you scooped it. You guys wrote the story. Yeah, because like from all we knew, the only game was Sonic Extreme, which was canceled and later replaced by Sonic Jam. So it's like, and that would have been years later. The Bug was one of the launch titles for the Saturn, and we were the first North American developed title to release for the Saturn. Um, so I guess speaking on the Saturn, can you tell us what it was like to actually program for the Saturn? Were the the rumors that the Saturn was difficult to program for true? Yeah, absolutely. It was uh, it was a tough nut to crack. We got one of the first development systems, which is about a one meter cube with a bunch of microprocessor components inside of it. And they didn't have any development environment, really, or any tools, just the hardware. So once again, we were writing our own engine and our own level editors and things like that. 
and we are also programming in the um, SH2 microprocessor language in assembly. So we get about halfway, three quarters of the way done with our project. And we were, we could have used some technical support from Sega, but what it turns out that by then they had brought a C compiler up and they were like, what are you guys developing for in SH2? That's, that's uh, silly. You should be developing in C. And it was like, guys, when we started the project, you didn't have a C compiler. That probably came on six months later. So we were kind of out there on our own uh, developing for the machine. And eventually we got some more usable development systems. But in writing our own tools, we did a lot of the work in our own 3D level editor, which I, I think even then we got our level editor working well before we got our engine working on the Saturn. So uh, got all that taken care of. Now, another thing about the Saturn is that it had two SH2 microprocessors in it. And people were expected to, well, if you want to make the most of the Saturn, you want to use both microprocessors. And one of the things we did was as soon as the system came online, when we booted the Saturn, we told the first SH2 to turn off the second SH2 and just had it sitting there in a, whole, a loop by itself. So the entire game of Bug was developed for using only one of the two microprocessors because there, there wasn't really an obvious way to offload work to the second microprocessor anyway. I gotcha, yeah. It made me wonder, was sort of that dual processor development not big in the 90s yet? Uh, there were two SH2 microprocessors. I was told just through the, the grapevine at Sega that they had done it because they got a good deal on the microprocessors from Toshiba and didn't really have a good use for it. And we, we didn't initially either. But by the time we had done our maybe a couple of years of development on the platform, we were able to use the second microprocessor. And because uh, in, in the NBA game where we're rendering 10 basketball players in 3D geometry, uh, the, it was a very simple use but effective use of it. The first microprocessor would say, hey, is that second microprocessor free? Uh, good, it is. Let's let it do these transforms. Now I'll do my own transforms. And then when it finished the transforms, hey, is that second microprocessor free? Uh, no, it's still doing transforms. Okay, I'll do transforms myself. So it would throw a lot of the 3D computing off to the second CPU just to load balance, I would say. So when it came time to do the 3D renders we were able to offload a lot of that processing to the second processor. But in a game like Bug, there was no obvious disposition of kind of processing responsibilities. So we ended up not using the second processor there. Let me uh, ask a follow-up to this because I thought I was hearing this correctly, but maybe I'm not. You started off development on, for Bug doing SH2 language in assembly. Did it complete with that language intact or did you end up going back to the C compiler? Yes, we completed the game in assembly. And then the big question for us was, when it came time to do Bug 2, did we want to use the same engine that we used for Bug 1 and enhance it? Or instead, would we want to rewrite it in C, which would make it a little more extensible? Because we'd, we, there was a lot of work we would need to recreate in C. And I believe uh, the decision at the time was to convert it back over to C rather than to keep it in the... Uh, the native SH2 language, which was hard to maintain and took a lot longer to develop for. Um, makes me wonder how many uh, other games were natively written in SH2. Like, and they you know, kept that, especially with the C compiler coming out just six months later. Yeah, hard to say. Um, I would imagine many of our contemporaries, the other people on the Tiger team, used the C compiler. So they weren't able to start in earnest until much later. And so their titles weren't released until much later. 
So that's another reason that we were, we were out, I think, just a couple of weeks after the Saturn itself launched. Um, one more follow-up question to that. That Sophia, the, uh, the dev kit that you guys had, what ended up happening to it? I didn't know that it was called Sophia, honestly. The, the one that I'm referring to was this big one-meter cube. Uh, eventually, we would have tossed it or given it back to Sega. Uh, technically, at the time, we never bought development systems as much as we licensed them, and they technically owned them. Mm. Um, so, uh, But by the time we would be finished using them, they might be one or two consoles ahead. Uh, so some of this stuff I sent to the National Video Game Museum in Texas, in Plano, Texas, uh, whenever I come across boxes of, of old tools or hardware. Uh, so some of it makes it way out there, uh, but a lot of times we would have just tossed it if, you know, we're moving from one office to another and didn't find a use for it. We just boxed it or tossed it. Uh, what was it like to work with Sega back in the Saturn days as compared to working with companies today? And do you maintain working relationships with anyone at Sega or with Sega in general? Uh, it was it was uh, just a pure pleasure to work with Sega. Uh, we were working very closely with them. We had done a number of titles with them before and after the Saturn work. We had full access to their producing team, their technical team. Go up there every few weeks, at least once a month. They would come down to L.A. and and chime in and direct. So at that time, they were growing. The, there was really no clear winner in the Saturn-PlayStation wars, so it, it seemed like it was an open playing field and uh, was a lot of energy. So I'd, I'd say it was just a you know an awesome working relationship with those guys. As the PlayStation started to become the premier development platform, uh, I would say Sega themselves started scaling back, and we started losing contracts we had with them. And so you know that wasn't necessarily a pleasant time as they were trying to configure how could they command a lead or a relevancy in the console market at the time. And you know history kind of shows that PlayStation was able to take off. Uh, quite, you know, in command of that. Uh, there was, a, when we first got our first PlayStation development kit, we ported our engine over to it and then did a very simple sprite test. How many sprites can we get on the screen at once moving around that were 16 by 16? And on the Saturn, we could get maybe 800 sprites at 60 frames a second. And on the PlayStation, the exact same code we got about 2,400 sprites up. Uh, I remember that it was about three to four times the number of sprites that it could manage in the same period of time or in the, using the same graphics. And so we kind of saw the writing on the wall early. We said that, well, gosh, the PlayStation is clearly a little more powerful technically. Saturn, I think, got out to the market first, but whether or not they could command that lead had to do with the kind of visual effects and the depth of graphics and it, it couldn't really keep up with what was going on on the PlayStation. Uh, that's crazy, considering that the uh, Saturn's kind of known as being like a 2D powerhouse and has a particular reputation for handling sprites. Yeah, uh, well, it's, uh, I guess rumor has it that it can. <laughs> but once we tested it, it, it just didn't have that, have that. And there was there was a subtle hardware bug with opacity in there that I remember that mm. we never used op opaque sprites because... As you scaled them, the opacity didn't scale. So it would apply the opacity redundantly, even if you scaled the sprite down. Um, uh, so there, there's maybe a, a couple of glitches in the system. Uh, but uh, if you were doing strictly 2D games, the Saturn was just fine. But right then, that's when the industry was sw swapping over to 3D. 
So what was the most rewarding aspect of the work you did on the Sega Saturn? Uh, I would say the innovation in the design. I think that the way that we used the technology and the way we pulled it off, the, the idea behind Bug anyway was it was a quad scroller. I didn't have that name instead of a side scroller. It's a quad scroller it goes in and out of the screen as well as back and forth. And uh, I never came up with that until Bug was released and somebody described it that way. And I says, yes, that's exactly what it was. But I would say our ability to innovate on a new platform was the most rewarding thing and to, to be able to create our own IPs and, and uh, characters and gameplay. Quad scroller, I love that. I think that's such a perfect description for, uh, for Bug. Yeah. Um, so you had mentioned a couple times the Tiger team, and that's not something that's very well known in the community. So could you just maybe tell us a little bit about, um, you know, exactly what that was? How did the Tiger team come about? You know, what they were tasked with and so on. Yeah, I remember that uh, Jeff Spangenberg's company, Iguana, was another one of the developers on the Tiger team. Uh, I don't remember who the other four developers were, but they were developers that Sega tapped in advance to say, these are the guys we want to equip with all of the resources to work on our launch titles. And I would imagine that when a console comes out, you know, in any generation of console, that whoever's running the software third-party relationship or the, the software development size has their, t their first teams that they know that they want to work on something. And uh, I think Tiger Team might be a, not just an industry term, but a technical term for this kind of advanced squad on, on something. Uh, but uh, we did have one meeting about a year before the launch of the Saturn where we all came up to uh, a room. There were three or four people from each team discussing what we were going to do and either the kinds of tools that we were creating and, and the possibilities for collaboration. But it was so early, we got together so early that a lot of us didn't have much to do other than stand and wave our arms and say, well, this is what we're going to do. But they, we didn't have a lot of uh, uh, code yet up at that time. So you've had your Saturn games published by Sega. You've had some by Acclaim, Origin, and uh, even Electronic Arts. Um, how did you get involved in the various ports that your team did for the Saturn? And what was it like to work with all these different companies? Real-Time Associates was known as a console developer at the time. And yet we didn't have a lot of originals out. We were doing a lot of side-scrollers or cartoon licenses and things like that. Bug was uh, one of the, the originals we did also, well, battle stations, I want to say, for Electronic Arts. So we had a few originals. But when we as a developer uh, had capacity... If we had a team working on an original, we still had capacity to do something that was a little less uh, demanding. Uh, and so we like to balance our portfolio with some tough originals and then some easier ports, train some new developers perhaps, or if we didn't have enough artists to do an original, but we had enough programmers. So, so doing ports was a business opportunity that worked well with our kind of overall strategy of product development balancing. Uh, as well as uh, able to, for us to get into some other publishers. If if uh, if one of these companies, for example, had an original, but they didn't know... We'll take Origin, for example. They didn't have a console department. They had their uh, PC development things, but they didn't have a console uh, wing. So by doing a port for them, they were able to get onto a platform that they didn't otherwise do. And for us, we didn't have to tax our design team with an original take the risk on whether or not product would would make it and and doing the ports can honestly be very difficult because a lot of times as i said earlier 
PC developers have a lot more resources to work with than console developers, limited memory, limited processing. So, so there were certainly challenges in taking games and developing them for the Saturn, porting them over. Uh, but on the other hand, they weren't as big a design risk. So at, at the time, I had a agent, a business development manager, third party, Paul Kohler. He was our public interface. He, he represented a number of independent developers. And he was the one who would be knocking on the doors, taking calls, and finding out opportunities that might be appropriate for us. So uh, we didn't do a lot of the primary uh, relationship management with the different publishers. Uh, but once we were in, we were connected with their production staff. All right. So Real-Time Associates is credited in one way or another with uh, seven Sega Saturn titles. Um, out of all the titles that you've worked on for the Saturn, which one was your favorite? Uh, it's got to be Bug. It's a chance for us to express ourselves creatively. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the first titles released for it. Uh, we got a sequel out of it and the covers of magazines at the time, which I was pretty proud of. So you prefer Bug over Bug 2? I do, yes. Uh, and the the one thing that I advocated for in Bug 1, it was the kind of the binary character motion. You were either moving left and right and up and down, or you were moving in and out of the screen and up and down, but there was no third dimension. I know at the time, games started doing things like Tomb Raider. Hey, you can walk all over the place and all around. The thing about the mechanics of Bug that I liked is that there was no question whether or not you were going to interact with something. Uh, my example was if, you're, if a boulder is running at you and you have full 3D motion, there's going to be a pixel point where you collide with a boulder and there's going to be another pixel point where you don't collide with a boulder. And it's not going to be obvious given the graphic context. And I felt that it's, it was a very simple decision or player decision to make uh, if we limited you to two dimensions instead of three dimensions. And ultimately, Bug 2 opened up the play field for Bug to move around laterally as well as, um, you know, in, in all six dimensions. Uh, but that was kind of against my advocacy. But the team itself wanted to explore more of a free-roaming game style. And, uh, you know, I can't say whether or not, you know, we accomplished that goal. There's just something about the certainty of knowing whether or not you're going to interact with something versus the, oh, I almost got it, or, oh, I cleared it. Gotcha. So one of the things I think we'd like to ask you is, how do you feel about the criticism level towards some of these Saturn titles Real-Time Associates has developed? Is there anything you would change in hindsight? Well, the... Um... It uh, depends on the which which title it might be. I know that a lot of times we were credited with like B quality products. I would say there's one thing that we lost out on at Real Time Associates, and that was in our design department. When I was a programmer at Mattel, we were our own designers, and so we designed the game, we coded them, we tuned them, and it was a one person thing. So, and, and at Mattel, they had people who were designers, but they never really gave us anything that we could use. So in my department, anyway, the designers were the programmers. And now, as I grew real-time associates, that's the model I used. I expected our programmers initially, but then our producers. I expected the producers to also be the designers. And for many of our games that we did, the producer was taxed with doing the game design document as well as all the scheduling and management and, and things like that. So 
because I had this bias against bringing in people who were strictly designers, then our designs were either underdeveloped or being created by the producers, which when it was a small enough team or a small enough game, it seemed to work. But the larger the teams got, the less appropriate that model was. So in hindsight, yeah, I would absolutely say our products could have benefited greatly from more focus on design and design innovation rather than, hey, does this have enough characters? Hey, uh, you know, do, does it meet the needs of our contract? Let's let's get it out there. Spending more time on the, the tuning and the fun factor would have set us on a different trajectory as a developer. I would like to know, uh, related to that question, what your favorite review memory was and also what was the harshest review memory that you have? Uh, gosh, the, the harshest one, I'm, I'm sure there are plenty of opportunities, uh, but the harshest one was a Star Wars port we had done for THQ on a handheld system. And yes, it was a first effort of a first team that when, again, when there were one or two people working on a product, it worked out great. But once we had a larger team and they were new at this, the game just wasn't really that much fun, wasn't that good. And what hurt about the review, it, it probably got 17 points out of 100 or something like that. It was really, they weren't impressed. <laughs> and uh, the thing is that, that I didn't like about the review, it said, oh, they didn't care. They just did this. And uh, my response to them would be, no, we cared a tremendous amount. We just weren't very good at it. Uh, it wasn't, wasn't that we didn't care. It's just that uh, either given the schedule or the budget or the experience of the team, yeah, it didn't end up being fun. And and there's that risk in licensed game adaptations. I mean, how do you make a Star, Star Wars side-scroller that's true to the license that shows the nature of the characters and and is actually fun? So that's a, uh, that would be a, a, a memory that, that I didn't like. And then I, I would say no other game got received as well as Bug did, which got on the cover of magazines and, and those would be the fun ones when when we hit some level of success. That must have been tremendously awesome seeing something that you poured months and months into on like the cover of a magazine and just you know, just looking like, yeah, I, I worked on this. We did this. Yeah. And and at the trade shows too, at at uh, I don't think E three was a thing yet, but we were still part of the consumer electronics show. Uh, I'm not sure whether or not the industry had split off into E3, but going into the booth at Sega and seeing these massive posters of our characters was awesome. A little funny side note was that one of the artists stuck his initials on the bottom of Bug's shoe, which didn't show up very much uh, when you had a small picture of Bug. But when they blew him up to be six feet tall, you could see this guy's initials out there in it, on, on Bug's shoe. Did you, did you try to try to steal the poster after the trade show? Just like had a couple of guys load into your van or something? That would that would have been nice, but no, we didn't we didn't get that. And reportedly, at that very same another uh, proud industry event, Steven Spielberg was being given a, a VIP tour of the Sega booth and was shown Bug, and he seemed to give it his thumbs up or thought that was good. So I've you know just uh, secondhand information on that. It did meet with some. A level of approval from him. Hey, if it's good enough for Spielberg, it's good enough for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Right. I'm so glad you did not see that THQ port we did. <laughs> <laughs> so would you say your team got more and more comfortable working on Saturn games with each successive title that it completed? Maybe even use that second ship here and there. 
Yes, as we became familiar with it, the tools became more robust. On the other hand, the types of things we were creating were more demanding. So if you figure that we built bug around the Saturn like a glove, we, we kind of knew what we wanted to do, made sure it did it, it was fine. But by the time we tried to port, for example, Wing Commander from Origin Systems onto the Saturn, and that was way beyond the capabilities of the machine and beyond the abilities of our team. So that was a failed development. Uh, and then if you look at something like Crusader No Remorse, again, it's a very ambitious project and a very technically difficult one to, to bring into that architecture. So while we were becoming more familiar with it, the types of things we were trying to do were much more difficult. And, and so that's where even some of our later efforts might not have been as critically well received because they, we were uh, trying to overachieve or overaccomplish. Uh, Dave, could you talk to us a little bit about what was the process to actually produce a Saturn game? And I realize it might be different for, you know, original concepts versus ports. But, you know, was it a case of, for example, pitching a concept, you know, then then maybe developing demo software and so on? Like, did you have to submit builds, uh, you know, every so often, uh, you know, time frames, quality control, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, that's pretty, uh, pretty standard development procedure for all games which is, if you've ever heard the term waterfall versus agile. Uh, we were using waterfall, which is at the beginning of the project, the first two or three months of a project might be a, a design phase where you're either doing creative design, art design, or if it's a port, looking at your tool chain, looking at the amount of memory, doing all the planning, and then defining monthly milestones. Almost universally on all of the games we did would have a monthly milestone for the publisher. And a short game might just be three or four months before we get to an alpha. And a longer term game might be nine months. Bug was a 12 month development cycle. So you, once you've done your design phase, you've then described in great detail milestone one, this date, milestone two, this date, milestone three, this date. And we wouldn't get paid unless we met the terms of the milestone. And typically these milestones would have descriptions like test for completion. This milestone will be deemed complete when it has this many this, that has that many of that, these sounds are working, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So even in a port, it would be, okay, we'll have our first level working, but it might not have the final graphics. And then the second one would be, okay, now we've got the final graphics in the first level, but we have four more levels without the graphics and things like that. We'd look at, we'd plan out what we thought the ideal development path was, and then every month file milestones, sometimes get them on the first time. Sometimes the publisher would say, well, it's missing this or that, or there's a critical bug here that we can't evaluate it. And gosh, pretty much that describes 90% of the games we, we developed for, for all platforms, much less the Saturn. So I had, a, I had a quick question. I know nowadays people use things like uh, GitHub and all these uh, versioning softwares. I was curious if there's anything of that nature that was used in the 90s or anything of some sort of code uh, backup and saving uh, uh, ability that you guys used in development? No, I don't think there was at that time. Uh, there would have been a source tree, a, ma a master source tree. I'm not sure whether or not there was version control software. I Honestly, I, I don't remember when that would have all come online. Uh, but we would have programmers, a few programmers, might be working with their own files and then every few days create a master or combine with their other programmers work 
so that part of it was required a lot of just manual coordination person-to-person uh, -person communication and things like that eventually as version control software became more powerful you know you'd, you'd check your code out work on it check it back in and then other people could check it out etc but i think for the saturn it was pretty much just done by hand i gotcha yeah i, I could imagine developing somewhere like that it must have been half the battle must have been trying to get everything merged in correctly but as you were saying imagine if you coordinate it properly it probably wasn't too too time consuming yeah and when when we didn't have any better tools that's we just used what we had and we didn't know that what we were missing were there any concepts uh in any of the saturn games that you worked on that you really wanted to implement but just could not execute due to hardware limitations uh and how are the hardware limitations dealt with back in those days seeing as hardware back then is nowhere near as powerful as it is today well if you figure that i came from the intellivision Everything right. was just like this awesome new opportunity. Heck, they weren't limitations. There were already many, you know, orders of magnitude greater than what we had in the past. I would say all of our designs specifically were made with the hardware in mind. And we were always balancing for frame rate was a main constraint where we couldn't, when we, when we initially came up with a design, we might not have known, oh, how many bullets can we have on the screen before the game slows down? Oh, well, we thought we could have eight, but we can only have three. Hmm, how do we manage that? I mean, that would have been a typical kind of problem solving. Uh, but I would never say that we were frustrated with the limitations of the machines. What we were trying to do was use the power of the machines to their maximum benefit. It's, I mean, maybe it's that glass half empty, glass half full kind of thing. When designing for one of those consoles, I wouldn't say, dang, it could only do 800 sprites. It's like, oh, well, how can we make the most of what those 800 sprites can do? So, yeah, I wouldn't say we were frustrated other than we wanted to make the most of limited resources. Well, now, uh, speaking with the Saturn being one of the first CD systems, uh, how did it feel going to a CD-based system where you didn't have that limitation anymore? Yeah, the uh, limitation on the CD was getting it off of the CD and into memory. So the loading, all of a sudden load times became important. And we wanted to minimize those. So we would even compress data, not because we wanted to fit into the memory like we would on a cartridge, but we would compress the data, even if there was plenty of room on the CD, so that it would come off the CD faster and then we could decompress it into memory. So uh, um, yeah, it was great to have all that memory, but what good was all that memory if you couldn't access it immediately? In a cartridge or a console, you could flip back and forth pretty much at a moment's notice, change levels in a half a second. And then on, uh, on the CD systems, all of a sudden you had that little, this like you're drinking the ocean out of a straw and there's only so much you could pull off it at a time. Uh, so it was great to have all that stuff. Now, it, it did enable things like full motion video and other assets that we hadn't specialized in. So it did allow us for some creative opportunities that we weren't able to do before. But I would say we always came at console systems as limited resource machines. And even when they had a CD, we were able to do that. Now, speaking philosophically and, and in complete hindsight here, I would imagine that when newer developers came to a CD-based system, they would have been able to do some exciting, wonderful things using their own technologies, which we never considered because we were always coming at things from scarce resources or uh, limited resources. So another thing that might have led to our titles not 
gaining mass consumer appreciation is because the systems that we raised ourselves on and the systems that we convinced ourselves were relevant to console development didn't take advantage of what these new machines could offer and full motion video is a, a perfect example of that. So um, so I can see that what was once a technical and creative advantage of the way we approach product development would have become a limiting factor when the resources became much more available for other people to try different types of things. So on that note, you had mentioned, uh, you know, full motion video and such. Did you ever feel, you know, pressure to sort of implement some of those full motion video or pre-rendered video or red book audio, you know, all the things that were suddenly possible with CD technology just because everybody else was doing it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, even in Bug, the uh, full motion video sequences were done by an outside company. Uh, and I think on battle stations, we had done those in-house. We had a, a graphic designer who was really ambitious and, and did a lot of great work, like storming the beach, scenes like that. So we ended up creating those things in the long run, but we were coming at it from with artists who were used to doing sprites uh, rather than being that familiar with 3D tools. So we did have to adapt our own internal processes to to be able to respond to those type of technologies. I don't think we ever used Redbook Audio. I, I may be wrong. Gosh, the music on Bug, I forget. If we loaded that and played it as MP3 files or something like that. But uh, yeah, there was uh, there were other developers doing things that we didn't have the expertise in that we would eventually have to... But even, even the move from 2D to 3D was was pretty demanding because uh, 3D math is you know a lot, <laughs> a lot more difficult than just bouncing something up and down on the screen. Uh, did you guys have any Easter eggs that were left in games that maybe slipped by or... You know, maybe that were known prior to release by your developers that, you know, took a while to sort of be uh, discovered. I know that on the cartridge games, even just for debugging purposes, we would have, if you're on the title screen and you did a certain keyboard sequence, you could jump to any level or things like that. So most of our games have those in there, but I, I think the fan sites might know more about them than I do. There is one, there is one cheat code or one one inside joke or level on Crusader No Remorse on the Saturn. And that's the credit sequence was the floor layout of our Seattle office. And all of the people were seated in their chairs and you could walk around and see the, the layout of our office. We'd used it in the tool set of Crusader, you know, that, that three quarters view. So there is a level in there and I don't know if it's part of normal gameplay or if it's the credit sequence or if there is a cheat code to get to it, but you can walk around the floor of our office in that game. That's, so well, that's kind of cool. cool. <laughs> Jinx. All right, there were three games that your team produced for both the Saturn and the PlayStation. Those are uh, Battle Stations, Crusader No Remorse, and Iron Man XO Man of War. Uh, was it truly much easier to develop for the PlayStation compared to the Saturn, as the rumors go? Perhaps due to the two chips on the Saturn versus the one on the PlayStation? Yes, that was a great point of contention inside the company, because if we wanted the same game, the same level layout, the same tunes, now we had developed our own cross-platform engine, so we could write a game once, and it would more or less work on any system. The name of it was called Rat Beast, which stood for Real-Time Associates 32-bit um, uh, engine and support tools. <laughs> we had to work pretty hard. I think the name Rat Beast came up first, and we had to really fight to figure out what the acronym was for. But uh, so when we wrote in that environment, if we wanted the game to work on the PlayStation and the Saturn, 
we could only make it be powerful enough to be Saturn. So in essence, the PlayStation version was a Saturn port. So we weren't able to, like the explosions, we didn't write different particle systems so that the explosions would be more fantastic on the PlayStation. They were the same on both. So any of our PlayStation games that were available on both platforms would have suffered for the limitations that it needed to run on the Saturn. Gotcha. I guess in that same vein, did Sony and Sega offer similar levels of programming support? Their engines were entirely different or their their operating systems entirely different. I would say the developers who developed strictly for the PlayStation, uh, and I'm thinking of Crash Bandicoot, for example, that was an early game that really took advantage of the PlayStation, the power that it had to do scaling 3D graphics very well. Couldn't have done that game on the Saturn. Uh, PlayStation had its own set of library that you'd use, whereas on the Saturn, we were writing right to the metal, writing right to the chips, coming up with our own draw lists and display lists and things like that. So they were two entirely different systems. And if you tuned a game around the power of the system, you could get a lot more out of it. Uh, I'll, I'll let you in on another uh, uh, anecdote of something that never came to pass. And uh, that's when we were getting ready to launch Bug. We were under NDA, but we had a, a delegation from Sony come by and wanted to see what we're up to, what, you know, what we were capable of. And we did show them as little of the game as we could without breaking any confidences to Sega uh, and did so by just masking out most of everything. So all they were seeing was the technology, but none of the graphics or anything like that. And that secured us meeting to pitch Sony to do a PlayStation original game that, you know, might have been our version of, of uh, it was our opportunity to come up with something like Bug, but to do it for the PlayStation. Uh, but uh, we were never able to greenlight anything on that. We, uh, again, as I was saying earlier, because we didn't have in-house designers that could really rapidly come up with a prototype or something like that, weren't able to respond to an opportunity to develop something for Sony first party like we had done for Sega. And so, yeah, that was a, a lost opportunity uh, for us. And then, you know, like a year later, Crash Bandicoot comes out and we go, dang, uh, that was an opportunity we might have been able to jump on, but uh, didn't have the, the right uh, team in place to, uh, to be able to respond to a creative call like that. I love stories like this. That's amazing. Yeah, so I'm I'm guessing I guess in, at least in terms of the SDK and stuff, Sony was a little bit easier to sort of develop for in that mind. Yes. Uh, yeah, they had they had some uh, libraries that that handled everything. We couldn't. It was with Sony. You had to work with their operating system, and then they handled the drawing. And uh, there was a uh, gosh. A, People were complaining on the PlayStation 1 that, hey, we want to write to the metal. And then the PlayStation 2 came out and they had enabled all of this power, but it required the programmers to be able to harness it all in this very technically obtuse way. And then the programmers were all saying, no, 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 give us the operating system. This is too hard to use. We don't, we don't need that much access to your technology. But by the time, I don't know if it was the PlayStation 3 that had nine cores or something like that, it became really obvious that the hardware providers needed to give developers access to the power without requiring that much technical expertise. Okay, let's switch over now and talk specifically about the uh, Saturn games that were produced, and we'll start off with Bug and Bug 2. 
Um, can you just tell us a little bit, how did you come up with the concept of bugs? So, I mean, you know, you'd mentioned earlier that initially it was going to be a Sonic game, but it sort of morphed into what ultimately became bug. What, what was the story there? I would say I was the driving force behind the, the quad scroller mechanic of being able to go back and forth and then turn 90 degrees and go in and out. That was kind of the high concept. I drew up a few diagrams of how I, I felt the mechanic should work and handed that off to the team. And then they worked, they worked with it from there. Incidentally, I was trying to get the programmer to be able to make Bug walk on walls uh, or even on ceilings. I felt like as long as we had this ability to have him jump up and down, well, what would happen if he then jumped onto a wall? He should be able to walk up and down the wall. And if he jumped, either jump back down due to gravity or else maybe he'd bounce back onto that wall and then even on the ceiling and then jump down and jump back up to the ceiling, kind of anti-gravity or something like that. Uh, that was a little ambitious for the team at the time. And then there was another mechanic that was kind of like the sonic rings that I was an advocate for, but the team didn't uh, integrate and they felt it was too great a tuning risk and right now bug has hit points just like in any other game but what i wanted to do was have sugar crystals and they were very much like sonic's rings uh, if you think about sonic as long as you're holding one ring you're safe but as soon as you lose that last ring you lose your life if you take a hit point what i wanted to have was sugar crystals which were in essence energy over time so if you'd grab a sugar crystal you were good for 20 seconds if you got a hit point Maybe uh, it would take away three or four seconds, but you know it was you could always replenish it by finding more sugar crystals. So as long as you had, as long as Bug was always eating sugar, that you were invincible until you ran out of it. It was like pretty much the same thing as hit points, but hit points that were slowly decreasing over time. So you needed to constantly be renewing your source of energy. And we looked at that. That was in the original concept. But the level designers and programmers were concerned that there hasn't been a game done like that yet, and uh, we don't know how we would be able to tune it, and so we're nervous about being able to make it be you know, balanced in the time that we have with that mechanic, so uh, abandoned that. We did have a lot of latitude, again, with, with the mechanics and how we wanted that to work. So kind of tune it as we go, and, and I, I know it, it ended up being very difficult. There were some bosses that were really tough, and I think that was because we were so concerned about getting it out and wanting to make sure it wasn't too easy all of our play testers were really good at the game so they knew how to beat these things and so when it was released to the general public it was like damn this is hard well it was hard because the people who were tuning it had been playing it for six months and were very good at it yeah actually to be honest i very recently played through uh, the entire first game and that was my uh, sentiment as well is that this is a tough tough game you know i mean i totally love it but it's it's very very difficult so you really have to be very sort of invest yourself into it to to sort mm -hmm. of get through it yeah and i wouldn't say that was intentional i would say that that was more an artifact of tuning it while we were going and and having the experts at the game set the skill level all right so at the time that uh, you were producing bug was the saturn hardware complete and we've talked a little bit about this already it didn't really get this uh, intricate. I know that they had, from a design, uh, you know, conceptual design point, uh, had given you a box to work with for a dev kit and you know, told you a lot of what the specifications were going to be. But you know, was everything finalized, or did it still have transitions that were going on while you were developing? Oh yeah, it was definitely uh, going through hardware transitions while we were developing it. Anytime we would have gotten a new dev kit. It might have slowed us down for a week or two as we were integrating with the 
either the new capabilities or they might have reorganized some of the architecture. Uh, so it, I wouldn't say it was uh, significant to the detriment of the product. It's, it was another technical task, but it was a moving target that we were developing for. But every time they gave us an update, we would uh, adjust our sites and uh, dial it back in and then move on from there. I, I don't know how many months prior to the release of the game, the hardware was frozen. It was a lot of adjustment going, but you know, honestly, the reward for being one of the first developers on a platform for me is much more rewarding than the frustration of writing for a moving architecture. And I remember some of the other people on the Tiger team complaining that, you know, hey, there's no C compiler. Hey, the machine does keeps changing. Hey, this really sucks. And I was going, are you kidding? This is awesome. We're one of the first people on here. What do you think? We'll take your game if you don't want to do it. You know, kind <laughs> of thing. So was Sega looking for something specific from you uh, when you were doing Bug or, or or once it became clear that it wasn't going to be Sonic, it was going to be Bug, you were just sort of given free reign to do whatever you needed? I think the idea, they were sold on the a Sonic-like experience, that it was a platformer. So that was something that they agreed to or that, that we were all set on. Uh, but they gave us a tremendous free reign on that. And I I think I remember uh, mentioning Steve Apoor, our producer, was a big advocate for that, saying that they were going to Sega would get the best work out of our team if they allowed us to have a lot of latitude. And I think they were happy with what we did. It's, it was a uh, first of its kind on its platform, so I was really happy with the amount of latitude that they gave us. Uh, how big were the teams that work on Bug and and also Bug Two? Bug uh, was about twelve people at its largest, uh, and that would have been the art team and the programming team the level designers and gameplay designers and any support uh, support crew as well if i remember we had maybe two or three engine programmers we had two people who were specifically doing the level design deciding where the characters were placed the either the number of hit points or the speeds they would set up they would set up an enemy play it tune it and then maybe place that at five or ten places through the level so i'm going to say maybe two or three people in that department and then we had our chief character designer jeff cook cranking out the original character designs and then he would give that to our 3d artists who would create them using 3d models in soft image i think it was at the time and then ultimately while the characters were all done in 3d we rendered them out as sprites so that they're kind of flipbook animations of 3D characters uh, that were all uh, designed by Jeff and then modeled out and then rendered out. Uh, and that art team would have been probably five, five or six people, somebody doing textures for the background. And then audio probably handled by the main programming staff. We had composer uh, Greg Turner on that, and that was one of his first pieces of work for us. And then uh, tool designer, who was the guy who wrote the level editor itself and all the features that would allow the levels to, to be integrated into the game. Uh, incidentally, one of my favorite soundtracks that Greg Turner wrote for Bug, and the idea was, the original concept was, we want this to be like the Pink Panther on speed. Uh, <laughs> the, some little catchy, jazzy tune, but really fast and driving. And there's a audio CD out there uh, that Sega put out. Um, I, I don't know if, if this is available online or anything like that. But it has the original concept song for 
bug on it. Now, the original concept song didn't make it into the into the game itself, but it was Greg's kind of pitch of, hey, this is what I want this stuff to sound like. And I got to tell you, that piece, I, I could listen to it a hundred times, and it's just, it's a brilliant piece of music. I think it's called Bug Bop, and it shows Greg's brilliance at his best. And there's all sorts of little runs which you can figure insects going and just a, a great little piece of music. We're definitely going to try to find that. That's amazing. That's awesome. So how long did development take for each bug game from start to finish? I want to say the first one was certainly a year, and then the second one was probably about that long. And uh, the second one, we had to start over, start from scratch, because we wanted to do the engine in C rather than in the SH2 assembly language. So it, even though it was, I want to say, tw- another 12 months development, uh, the first four months of it were just recreating everything that we had in the original bug game as far as the engine goes, collision code, animation, the level rendering, and things like that. I gotcha. So when Bug was supposed to launch in September and you guys got the notice that it was that the Saturn was launching in the spring, what was your reaction to that? And were you caught off guard as the other developers were? I don't recall I don't recall uh, that so much. I know that we really wanted to be a launch developer. Uh, so we would have changed our uh, our production schedule however we needed to to, to get the game out. So now I don't, I'm, I'm not I'm not remembering whether or not we ran short of time or you know how how Sega's schedules would have uh, affected our uh, impact. I'm sure we would have been able to tune it better if if it were if we had more time to do it. But you they uh, did they let you know beforehand they were dropping it in May versus the September they kept talking about. You know what? It may be that their public face was September, but we were always trying to get it done in May. I don't recall a, a, a deadline where it was brought up in advance. We probably had a one-year development contract with them and were slated to, to be released May or June anyway. So I don't think it, it's like we had a 16-month contract that got pulled back to 12. I think that we had a 12-month contract that then the game was released as soon as it was done rather than sitting around or maturing. So records from the time period are not the easiest to come by. Did you got were you guys successful in being a launch title or or were you slightly delayed? We were only a week or two from the launch of the Saturn to my recollection. So it wasn't available on the shelf day of, but it was very close thereafter. And I think that would have been mostly due to QA issues. And once you get a game in testing, they might find, oh, if you go off to the side, press this three times down, and, and all of a sudden your character gets off screen. Responding to those kinds of issues would have been the things that would have slowed us down towards the end of the release. If you were to make a hypothetical bug three for Saturn, of course, what would that look like? Ah. <laughs> well, I, I certainly think we would have him walking on walls and ceilings the same way I would have him pinned in two directions rather than three and but the the novelty of having them on the walls and the ceilings uh giving the extra kind of gameplay uh one up rather than having him be a free roaming free roaming you know if you look at what nintendo did with mario 64 that's where he he was able to explore these wonderful worlds um i don't think i would take bug there now if i was going to write it on a contemporary console or in current game engine standards yeah i think that's what we do uh, but then a lot of times that all depends on the, the development budget. 
uh, one thing that Real-Time Associates was known for is, well, if this is the size of the budget, how much gameplay can we put in there? And a $2 million bug three would look a lot different than a $400,000 bug three. Uh, so you know, features would be based on what we could uh, what we could afford building out to. We'll have to get a Kickstarter going for bug three. Yeah, like that's that <laughs> I'll literally donate. my next question was, you know, like a on the fly follow up is, you know, if people hear this podcast and, you know, enough of them uh, were interested in trying to do a Kickstarter for a bug free, would you be interested? And if so, what platforms would you be interested in seeing it on? Well, uh, absolutely interested. Now, if you think back to the contract that I signed with Sega, they own the rights to Sonic. So I signed a contract with Sega that said, you own all of the characters in this game. They yanked Sonic, and then we said, oh, let's put in Bug. And we did the greenlit Bug, and we did it. And about halfway through the development, I realized, wait a second, our contract says they own all these characters, because it was supposed to be a Sonic game. So I went back to their head of product development two or three times and said, hey, you know, we really want to own these characters ourselves. Can we get the rights to our characters back? And it was very, very firmly no. They're paying for it. They wanted to own it. They got the contract the way they wanted it. So so technically, Sega owns the rights to Bug, even though it was our original IP. And I don't know if we had walked up to them and said, hey, here's our here's our bug game, would you like to publish this but let us own the intellectual property? I can't say, uh, you know, theoretical conversations after the fact with Sega. I think they would have said, nah, we probably wouldn't have done that because we wanted to own the IP. So uh, so right now, Sega owns the IP. Now, it would be possible to license it back, I suppose. Uh, I don't know what their terms would be. But, you know, the, the things that Real-Time Associates are developing now are so far different than, you know, from, from console games or... or uh, arcade games that yeah i i don't know that real-time associates would be you know put our hat in the ring to develop that and just focusing on other things but that'd be a blast i'd love to consult with somebody who wanted to do it or collaborate with somebody who'd want to do it now let's say you know sega couldn't or decided not to um, license out the characters for bug um, we've seen in recent history like spiritual successors come about, and most recently with like Bloodstain for the Metroidvania style of games uh, from Ega, uh, but also for like the Mega Man style of games. We've had a couple of indie developers who kind of did spiritual successor attempts at that. Could you see yourself you know, being involved in a project like that where it was more of a spiritual successor to Bug? Yes, absolutely. And uh, our spiritual successor might be called Fish. The same thing that we did with Bug in the Bug World with just a bunch of crazy fish that were, and we'd come up with some mechanic for that. So, so yeah, absolutely. Cool. Okay, so the next game on our list that you guys have developed was uh, Battle Stations. And uh, this was a really interesting game because, um, for one, I'm a naval veteran, so I was very interested to see how this game would play out and uh, all the ships and how you designed it and everything in the aspects of this game. And this is definitely a much more technical game than it looks on the surface. How is the technical aspects of each ship determined? Oh, gosh. Well, I'll, I'll start with how that game came to be. Now, if you remember, I was working at Mattel Electronics. And if you look at their back catalog, one of their, most, uh, one of their highest rated games, most popular games, is Sea Battle. And it had this overhead view of uh, ocean a couple continents. And you could move your ships around. When they got close to one another, then it became an arcade action game where you're trying to shoot against other ships. And then 
zoom back out. So it was this naval fleet, strategic and tactical game, pretty ambitious for four kilobytes. And it was a lot of fun. So we were approached by Electronic Arts, producer there named Michael Kosaka, who I've known for a long time. And Michael said, you know what? I'd like to do a reboot or a spiritual. I'd like to do a game just like that, but for the PlayStation and the Saturn. And, and I said, well, we'd love to do it because, you know, I've worked at Mattel and I know the game Sea Battle. And he goes, exactly. That's why I'm coming to you. So we were a, a good match for doing that game in general. That being said, it was an ambitious uh, game for us at the time, you know, noting that we didn't have a big design department to throw at it. So it was up to the producer and the kind of the technical team to figure out what the game mechanics were going to be like and the, the design and, and, the, and the flow of the game. So just looking at a range of ships, and uh, honestly, I don't recall the design process we would have used. I don't know that we were trying to make it be that authentic. Uh, but it was designed to be that kind of spiritual successor to I mean, the Intellivision Sea Battle. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, it was a, um, it's an interesting game to play. When I was playing it, uh, one of the things that's really difficult about it is you more or less have to hold the instruction manual open when you're selecting a ship to know what the controls are for that particular ship because they're completely different for each one. Well, we were talking a bit about the ship design in battle stations and that each ship itself had different controls even the interface itself might not have told you what those controls were that sounds to me like a pretty dramatic design flaw uh, I'm, I'm thinking of games after that era where the interface would you know pop up bubbles or have you try something once or twice and then uh, once you've mastered that add another mechanic once or twice after that but having continuity of interface would have been, or lack of continuity in interface, a, a pretty serious design flaw. Again, we were working with producers and programmers as a, as a kind of our design team, so no surprise there. We wouldn't have intended to say, you know what, we want to make a game that you got to play with a manual in your hand was not the objective. <laughs> yeah. Now, as far as the controls, the way I picture this game is as an arcade machine, kind of like a Tekken machine at the arcades with a massive screen and uh, a big control deck in front of you. And each one has a custom set to where you basically uh, you control each ship very uniquely. And um, it's a shame that you guys were kind of restricted with the way that the Saturn controls were set up with the uh, controller, uh, because... It seems like you guys would have had a lot more fun with how to control each one. Yeah, if there were hand control limitations, I'm sure we worked on that uh, within that. And then, of course, even if there was a PlayStation version, it's not like we could make more things available on the PlayStation than we could on the Saturn um, if we wanted the same game on both platforms. So we would have been limited there to the, the least of the two controllers. I've got one or two fun facts about battle stations. The first was that this is one of our first truly 3D graphics uh, in games. And, you know, we had these boats that would float on the surface. And we had, I forget if we had an aircraft carrier or battleship, whatever have you. And we had a submarine. Uh, one of the characteristics of the submarine was that it was supposed to go underwater. <laughs> and we'd gotten, I don't know how many months into development before we finally took the submarine and tried to put it underwater and the technology that they had developed in order for the ships to float on the water didn't require a certain amount of clipping and so when the submarine went underwater it just kind of went down the screen and it didn't occlude by the ocean it did not drop under the ocean a big technical oversight 
not even sure how it ended up uh, getting around that one. That's fantastic because the submarine was a very fun ship to play in the game because basically you could go underwater and the other ship could not find you unless you popped back up and then attacked. And um, the, there were the other ships were like the aircraft carrier. You had a battleship, you had a frigate, but uh, nothing could compete with the submarine. It was absolutely fantastic. Controlling the submarine was a lot of fun to do because you could just stay underwater and attack the other ship and just kind of run around the screen at trying to confuse the other guy. It was pretty fantastic. Um, I'm, I'm sure we intended it that way. <laughs> Definitely. Now, I did, I did have a question on, did anybody, if you can recall, the, um, the most difficult ship to play is a patrol boat. And uh, it gets really interesting if you're playing a patrol boat versus an aircraft carrier. Did you guys ever have any kind of challenge of doing stuff like that? Oh, I, gosh, the, the stories of designing and tuning that are, are so far lost to time. Um, I, I, I couldn't really, I'd, I'd have to play the game and, and see whether or not it rang any bells. I'm sorry about that. No, 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 quite all right. There was another thing that came up in the development of battle stations that I used as a debugging example for any number of games. I, I cite it various times. So on a transition from one screen to the next, you might finish a level and then it would fade out, fade in, and then go to something else. About every four hours as we were finishing the game, it would crash during a level load. We didn't have great debugging tools at the time, uh, so there wasn't a really good way to find out what was happening. And it seemed to be about, you know, you'd need to play a 10-minute level or 15-minute level, and then after about, you know, one, it was random, but one in 16 times, the game wouldn't load. Uh, the game would crash. And it was driving us crazy, and it was a considerable time sink, and the programmer was really working hard on it. And as it turned out, as it moved to the next screen it would choose one of 16 songs to play randomly, but the list of songs only had 15 songs in it. So one out of 16 times in this level transition, it would pick a song that was invalid and crash the system. But it was very difficult to track down because it was happening so randomly. But at the end of the day, it's exactly what it seemed like. <laughs> the, the problem was exactly what we were experiencing. One out of 16 times, it would crash. A great way to... To uh, I'll say our, our programming and debugging techniques increased significantly as, as a result of developing that game. Okay, so this one's an, an interesting one for me particularly because um, when I first got my Saturn, I, I got it primarily for two games, and then I started trying to just get other games to enjoy on the system. And then I want to say that my second set of games included Crusader No Remorse. And I actually had a lot of fun with it, though I never really got very far. Uh, so I know that the original game was coded in assembly and in C, which apparently made it. So there's like a, some references online that it made it difficult to port directly to the PlayStation and Saturn, if not making it impossible. Can you tell me about the challenges in porting the game? That game was developed in our Seattle office. We had a 70 person team in Los Angeles at our at our largest size and then another 30 up in Seattle, and that one was being developed by our Seattle team. So I don't know a lot about the specifics. I do know that it was a PC game in its own right, and developers were able to you know, throw a, everything, including the kitchen sink, at things when they were developing them for the PC to make them, you know, it's a lot more memory, usually a lot more microprocessing power. So our goal there would have been to come up with, to at least duplicate the 
game levels and and the game mechanics. Uh, but my guess is that we would have needed to write our own kind of render and interaction engine, but using the level layout and game design components from the PC. Then the second uh, thing is because PC games typically have all of these controls at your fingertips, needing to map that console controller would have been uh, challenging as well. Yeah, definitely. Were there any discussions about porting the sequel? Probably, but I don't think the original was a large enough commercial success for them to consider moving the sequel as well. Okay. Um, when it comes to ports like this, how much freedom do you guys have in making changes to the game? I want to say little to none. What we would do is, if we needed to make changes, consult, make our best recommendation and consult with the original game designers or the production team there. And it would be one thing if we said, hey, we want to license your game code and make a game based on it. That'd be one thing. But when they're hiring us to do the game for them, typically they're the, they're the ultimate creative uh, agent there. And in this case, like I said, Origin didn't have a console department. And while we had port teams available, so we were a good fit for them in that regard. But then the question of how to adapt the game to work in a console market was the difficult thing. And and I have a, you know, my appreciation has only grown over the years for the importance of the original platform to a game, either for technical or, or creative limitations. Doesn't mean that a game is going to work great on a console if it's a breakout game on a PC. Sure. Uh, one more on Crusader. Really, is more like since since you just uh, told us that it, it was your Seattle team that was doing that game. Do you have any insights or any stories specific to Crusader that you wanted to share? I think I mentioned though that somewhere in the game, and whether or not it's in the regular game floor, or it's an Easter egg. We have the layout of our Seattle office where you could walk around, and yeah. you probably could be able to shoot all of the people. <laughs> Or their flamethrower, or whatever the weapon of uh, choice was. Uh, I think that's that's mostly what the what I remember my takeaway from that game. So it's generally seen that the Saturn ports of EA Sports titles run markably worse compared to the PlayStation versions. How much of the original source code and assets can be used, and how much had to be built from the Saturn fort from scratch for the NBA games? Uh, if, if we were lucky, it might be fifty percent reuse and and fifty. Uh, percent start from scratch we would have taken their models but needed to simplify them right if they had 600 polygons for a player and we only figured we could have 58 or 60 uh, for some reason that number stands out in my mind a uh, low poly per, uh, low poly model so we would have had to scale down the assets by hand probably use their quartz uh, their textures uh, things like that would have been would have been available on the art side but scaling the art down for sure and then making it fit in the memory footprint would have been another technical task and uh, in in something like that i feel like that would have been maybe a 50-50 effort you'd mentioned that there are a couple of titles looks like mostly the ports that were dealt with in your Seattle office, but you also said something you know very early on in our interview that you know, it had something to do with the NBA games. Now I can't remember whether it was having to do with the processors doing the offsetting of the twin processors uh, for SH2, um, or if it had something to do with this being one of the first 3D games that Real Time Associates had done. But uh, it's going to be uh, kind of a, a generic question for the ports is you know do you have any insights or stories that you wanted to mention about uh the nba games well the nba games 
I, I would say the best use of the SH2 that we found, and I talked about how we would ping pong back and forth as we're doing 3D renders. Uh, we would task the second processor for one and then um, go off and, and do one on the main processor and then check back in with the second processor and it's like, oh, he's got time, let him do another render. So we were able to uh, double double duty our rendering times with that. That was about the, the, the best use of the SH2 we found. You know, I always, it's, it's tough doing a port from a larger system or a more capable system down to a less capable system. Even though you feel like, oh, it's a video game console, should be able to do this stuff. Perhaps a ground-up basketball game would be more appropriate on the hardware than trying to port uh, one that was more ambitious than the hardware and and uh, port it down. On the one hand, it would be more work to do that, and that might not have been economically viable given the economy of the time. On the other hand, it might have fit the system more like a glove, which is when we were doing an original like Bug, we had the ability to say, how far can we push the hardware and how can we make the game be the best with that rather than how do we get this 20 pounds of potato in a 10 pound sack? <laughs> were there any lessons or techniques besides the SH2 uh, offloading that you were able to take away from this game and apply later on? No, nothing really uh, comes to mind. And when we're doing ports, we typically uh, will enhance the existing code base and then the publishers own that rather than it being original work product for us. So even if we were able to come up with some either revolutionary or evolutionary technique that we find useful, uh, we, would, uh, we wouldn't really own or be able to reuse that. Now we could recreate another one in its style if that ever happened. But when we're doing originals, we could carry our work forward. But when we were doing ports, it technically didn't have the rights to the code to reuse it. Okay. Okay. So uh, the next game that we want to talk about is Iron Man and Exo Man O War in Heavy Metal. Um, this was actually the game that, looking you know back through the publications at the time, this was the game that tended to receive the most critical uh, sort of reviews. So maybe start us off by just telling us, you know, how this game came to be. Sure. Well, we were doing some ports or games for Acclaim at the time. So we had developed a, a relationship with Acclaim. And they had the opportunity to do this comic book crossover license. So uh, Iron Man, a popular character, of course. Uh, and then uh, Man of War was from a different comic franchise. And for, for whatever reason, Marvel and this other publisher created a limited series of universe or, or storyline where these two characters came together. So it created a new license or new franchise. And because we'd done a bunch of action or platformers, Acclaim approached us and asked us if we wanted to do this. And of course, we always looking for ways to grow our portfolio. So uh, we did. And as I mentioned, this is probably the era where uh, not having a de dedicated design team uh, but rather giving the producers and the assistant producers the design task as games grew in sophistication was one of the most limiting things in our kind of our uh, the the quality of the products we're putting out at that time. And for some reason, we determined we knew it would need to be a side scroller, but I believe it's a side scroller with some 3D perspective shifts in it. So we're using 3D graphics, but the gameplay is still limited to corridors and things like that. And this specific game 
is the one where where I was speaking earlier about when we're doing a cross-platform game we, that if it's going to run on the Saturn and on the PlayStation that well the PlayStation version is really only as good as the Saturn version because we didn't want to maintain two sets of artwork or two sets of explosions there may be some cases where we did up res the PlayStation versions but the in order to have our engine our cross-platform engine support both games uh, we had uh, the right to the lowest common denominator that's going to be the one where that's the, the most obvious you know we're working with a publisher when we do that and we tell them either in order to make this budget or these features we can develop the game this way and so they would have had full sign off on sure let's let's have the game uh, be the same on both platforms do what you can uh, so we we did get permission from the publisher to do that but the end result or the the uh, audience is the one that's going to suffer for a, a decision like that so um, yeah I, I I think just uh, I'm not sure how much material we had to work on back in the day if there were actual comic books that we could work from or if they had characters villains or a, a story that we were trying to tell or how much of that just came from us saying well good guys are trying to go into a bad guy's lair yeah I'm not surprised I mean in any portfolio there's going to be some games that are better received than others but uh that was a difficult game to finish. I remember you know, teams back in the day, we had crunch mode. When uh, games, uh, game technology was new, we didn't know how to schedule out the tasks. Or if we had bugs, we'd have to be working long weekends trying to debug it. If we said, uh, this will take us three weeks and it's six weeks, uh, well, that's, that's when we were doing burning the midnight oil to try to get our games back on schedule. Okay, so I had not played this game prior to preparing the interview. And based purely on the reviews, which is something that happens a lot, right? You know, it is the internet age. You read something and it can color an opinion even before you touch it. So I was basically prepared to actually dislike it because of the reviews that I'd been you know, reading. And I did find some things that were kind of lacking. But to be honest, like overall, I didn't hate the game. And it didn't seem as bad as the reviews were presenting it. Uh, I thought there were some interesting concepts, uh, you know, some of the ways that the action happened, particularly in the first level. But uh, you know, there are, again, like critical you know, reviews, something about the enemies looking like Doom characters. Do you feel that the reviews at the time were fair? Um, yes. <laughs> I don't think that they had any axe to grind against us. or you know, There were a lot of other games out there that were originals that were looking better than ours. So... You know, as much as I'd say we did the best with the resources that we had, I'm sure that the, you know, if, if it were getting critical reviews, it's because there were other products out there that were looking better, but them not knowing really the technical limitations or the budgetary limitations, creative limitations might have been imposed on us. That being said, we should be doing the best job we can with something in any opportunity. And if it just ends up not being as fun as somebody would like, I think that's entirely fair criticism. And see, I find it kind of interesting because, you know, as I mentioned, I was prepared to not like the game. And I had heard a, a lot of negative things, and so my view was already colored as I started playing. But there were aspects to this game that I, I liked, uh, thought was interesting. I definitely felt like I needed to read the manual before I could... It wasn't just something I could just pick up and play and knew what was going on. Have you revisited the game since it, it was put out, you know, originally and... Yeah, have you looked at things that you would have changed? I haven't gone back and played hardly any of these games. When I'm, uh, 
I've noticed that when I'm developing a game, I get caught up in the stress of the release and the problems and the schedules and the budgets. And so there's there's kind of like a bad taste in my mouth when I'm releasing a game. And I've got to get some distance from that game and then come back and play it and decide whether or not I like it in and of its own right. Because it's kind of like I remember the pain of childbirth and when I when I think about those productions. And many of those I haven't gone back to look at to see how, how I would treat it differently. So I, I'm glad that they're, they're, I, I don't recall the, the overarching concepts that might have been fun or novel, but I'm mindful that these games were likely under-designed uh, for what they could have been. Now, being in the eye of the storm when developing a game like this, now, now I did play this, I, and I, I agree with Kay that it, it really isn't as bad as I expected. It, um, it had some mechanics to it that I, I really did enjoy, and I, I, I didn't hate, you know, it, was, it wasn't that bad. But as a developer in the time when you have this game coming out, is it, and, and you get the bad reviews that come from it, is it difficult to see a bad game coming? when you're in the development cycle of it? Huh. Yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, honestly, in hindsight, I'm sure I felt that we had a solid B title there. You know, having done Bug and then doing some of these other games and recognizing that when we're driving off our own creativity in, in that way, uh, that, that we can, the, the more latitude we have, the better job we could do. You know, that being said, I think we probably had a lot of latitude in Iron Man uh, Man of War a game as well, but didn't uh, that that style of game wasn't uh, playing into our specialty. Uh, the the cartoon style, lighthearted comic action is something that I always figured Real Time Associates that was that's right where we were at home the most. And to take that into a little bit darker kind of game and being able to to have free reign in that genre, I'm not surprised that that we couldn't take full advantage of it because it's not really where our mindset was so i seem to recall at the time that that might have been a single or double and not a home run like some of our other work might have been but uh yeah i, I wouldn't say that we would have been misaligned or or disagreed with the critical review of the time okay so we're now coming up to the last uh portion of our conversation and we've just got some uh general questions now in your opinion, generally speaking, is the industry a better place now than it was during the late 90s? And is it heading in a positive direction, in your opinion? Hmm. Well, the industry was a better place for me in the late 90s because there were fewer people who knew how to make games. <laughs> so we were doing fine uh, with, with giving people opportunities in the, in the business. There were, there were not as many independent developers. And over the decades, of course, more and more people flow into the game industry. We're seeing tons more innovation and tons more value to consumers and this whole free-to-play model and so on. So right now, I, I love the creativity and the diversity that we're finding in games on Steam and indies and retro throwback games or uh, games done in the style of, as well as just, you know, how can you make a, a fun game out of a, a border agent in in uh Arstotska or whatever, you know, papers, please. The, the innovation that, that we're seeing now, for me, makes, uh, as a game consumer, I, I love where the industry is going. Now, for game developers, it's a much harder business model to hit. There are so many people out there. There's so many games, so many titles. And you've got to break through the noise and have something that's just absolutely awesome 
to make it. And I'm sure there's a lot of absolutely awesome out games out there that don't make it uh, for, for whatever reason. So it's a it's tough for developers, but I think it's great for consumers. That makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Do you see uh, legacy technologies and franchises reemerging in the mainstream? Uh, well, like in movies, I suppose there's always these perennial games that, that will get made and remade and reinvented over and over. So, you know, your big tentpole things are, are going to uh, always be AAA great productions. The retro games, I love the I love the developers who say, I want my game to look 16-bit or I want it to look 8-bit. And then what they can do with that and, and kind of bend the reality of what those systems could do into what they have now. I love the, the continuity or, or what's being done with retro-style games on current architectures, but also love, I, I don't play so much the big AAA franchises. There'll always be uh, Tomb Raiders and uh, Mario's and Zelda's. I guess another way I could word that is, um, in essence, do you see the future of retro gaming moving less from the 8-bit and 16-bit recreations uh, over to more of like a 32-bit recreation? Yeah, at what point in time does a retro game stop becoming a retro? I, I mean, and, and even is the Saturn considered a retro game? And would somebody even be interested in making a game that was limited to what, say, the Saturn had at that time? I think that artistically we're tied more to the earlier architectures as far as them being notable and signature. Uh, but by the time you get into these semi-ubiquitous computing platforms like the PlayStation and the Saturn, I don't know that anybody might pick that as a, I'm going to make an awesome game with the limitations of Saturn, or it seems like that would be developing with one hand tied unnecessarily behind one's back. Okay, so this is kind of a controversial topic. Uh, many games from the 90s era and earlier, they're all for what's considered obsolete platforms and systems that don't have any first party or first sales you know, in re uh, retail shops anymore. They're often developed or published by companies that are no longer with us, and it removes the possibility for reissue on a newer platform. So on the secondary market, some of these games command a very hefty price that places them out of the reach of the average gamer. And it leads those who are interested in exploring these titles towards methods that are often frowned upon by many voices in the industry. What do you feel about acceptable ways for today's gamers to experience you know, titles that might be old and popular, but scarce? Yeah, uh, the, uh, specifically if we're saying people can't play Bug unless they use a you know, quote-unquote, unlicensed or illegal emulator. And even though it's owned by Sega and technically Real-Time Associates would be getting a royalty on it if it was selling in in uh, platforms like that, I, I feel like if they're not being, and, and this is not uh, from a legal point of view, but just from a uh, industry pundit or somebody who's glad to keep the interest in that era alive, if a, if a game isn't being exploited in its original platform, I think it's great that people might be making them available to other people to play. The, I think the legal issue is, as long as they're not making money at it, it's possible, it's legal to do if you're giving the work away. Although then it might mean that the work that's being given away is somebody else's intellectual property. But my general feeling is that if they're not being exploited currently, that's you know, it's great to make those things available to people who have interest in that era. 
you know, Disney doesn't like it with somebody were going to make a Mickey Mouse thing, they would shut that down. And I suppose Sega might not like somebody to do a bug game and want to shut that down if it's if that's something new. Uh, but if it's simply playing the older game that's no longer available, you know, I don't have any trouble with that. And, and uh, you know, honestly, I've played games on emulators that I couldn't find or I had no ability to play. Uh, but then even, you know, we we're talking about Keith Robinson, the exploitation of the Intellivision properties. He was making a livelihood out of finding ways to make those things available to consumers. It, but then he was actively exploiting or actively promoting ways to, to make those games available. So in a, in a purely practical sense, if there were an uh, intellectual property rights holder that was exploiting them, I would frown upon people trying to support those efforts. But if we're talking about a catalog of work that's largely been abandoned, I, for one, don't have any trouble with people having fun with it. So in that vein, I mean, obviously game preservation, you know, with uh, titles from the 90s is very different than what we see today. I mean... Uh, you know, we're talking about lost source codes and things like that. What's your opinion on, you know, game preservation, especially with games from that era? Joshua, you know, we would always archive all of our source code. And then as we would upgrade from server to server or move from office to office, some of that would fall, you know, gosh, how much of this do we have on magnetic tapes? And then all of a sudden, we've got no magnetic tape reader in order to read them, so we throw away the tapes and oh, there goes our archive. So it is a little unfortunate that the, the methods or the sources of these things, the ability to recreate them, is lost to time. For, for somebody to have a, a catalog or digital copies of games for people to play, I think either as researchers or just as interested uh, people interested in games of the era, I, I wouldn't mind if people are able to play that as long as they're not interfering with the rights of active intellectual rights holders to enjoy their IP. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, so this one's uh, near and dear to my heart, in particular because I, I'm a, a fan of collecting you know, pre-release, and that's kind of how you and I started talking. I mean, for the listeners, uh, I had a booth at uh, Portland Retro Gaming Expo last year, as you guys know, I, I tend to do the Xbox LAN section and also have uh, some stuff running in the background. And uh, David walked up to my booth and noticed that I had had my, uh, my spare copy of Bug for sale. And he picks it up and he goes, I made this. And I'm just like, wait, what? So <laughs> it was a, a fun little uh, experience for me. And we've been talking in the almost year, you know, off and on since uh, trying to get him in for this interview. But we had talked about, you know, at that point in time, my interest in game preservation and not just uh, the preservation of things that have been released, but also steps in code. So alpha and beta versions of things, things that had been written but never actually had come out. And uh, I mentioned, like, many of us in the community, um, particularly in Shiro, we're collectors and preservers of, you know, like pre-gold builds of game software. And from being a fan of a title, uh, being interested in variations and changes between those builds, and wanting to learn how certain things were achieved, right? Assuming that we'd have access to the source code, preservation of the medium, or just because we think it's cool. There's all sorts of reasons for us to seek out, you know, betas, pre-release, tech demos, that sort of stuff. You had talked about, while, you know, at uh, PRGE, that there was a tech demo for Robocop and Gen 13. Now... It was loud in that free-play arcade area, and I had mistakenly thought you had said uh, something about Braindead 13, which was a Saturn game, 
and I'm like, wait, what? Oh. <laughs> and like things just didn't make sense for a while. But I finally saw the tech demo for Robocop and for Gen 13 and saw that it was for the PlayStation. My questions to you in relation to that, did such a uh, thing exist or were, possibly be in the planning stages for the Saturn, either for Robocop or Gen 13? And do you have any other like little unreleased notions that you can give us uh, information about? Yeah, those two uh, would have been developed because we would have heard, I, I do recall that there was a developer that was developing a Gen 13 title and that it was going very poorly. And so we were excited about the license and what we could do with it. So our artists threw together just what, what ended up being a character walking from, uh, you know, st across the stage and back, where I was trying to get that in the hands of the decision makers of the Gen 13 game to say, look, this, this is already clearly 30 times better than what you've got. I, I forget how I saw it at a trade show or whatever mm -hmm. it was. But that was our calling card into solicitation of rescuing a product that was in difficult development. I forget who the publisher was. And I also forget whether or not we would have said, and we do this across platforms, of course, the, at that point in time, we'd noticed that the PlayStation was literally three times more powerful than the Saturn, whether or not we could have brought a game like that to the Saturn without, you know, there's the... There's the economics of, of cross-platform development that make it attractive to release it for two consoles where I, th I think our budget would have been, you know, it's, it costs X for one platform, but X times 1.3 for two platforms. So it's like, wow, well, that's, that's how we're going to be able to make our economic model work. But then if it suffers with the limitations of the lower platform, it might not have. So... I'm not sure whether or not the Gen 13 would have been uh, slated for the Genesis, or excuse me, the Saturn as well, but that's why we would have created that. And I'm sure what happened with a publisher is if they were 50% into their budget of a title, you know, it already these sunk costs, the, I, I know the game never did get released, I don't believe it did, they didn't, wouldn't necessarily have the budget to say throw away that body of work and start all over on a mm. new one. So it would have been, a, even, even if we had what I consider clearly a superior technical capability, uh, the publisher may not have had the financial resources to commit to a license. Very very often when they buy licenses like that, they need to release them by a certain date or they'll lose mm. them. And uh, we've, we've been involved in a couple of games where the, we were up against a, a deadline of that had to get released or they would not have the, the ability to release it. So there been, could have been a number of factors on that one. But that's, uh, that was a fun one. Now, the RoboCop one was where a, a publisher did negotiate for and was trying to secure the rights to RoboCop. And we were showing them what we would have done with that. And I thought that uh, very compelling and capable as well. But in that case, I don't believe the publisher ever received the, the rights to do it. Or maybe there at the time, there were a couple of companies that were trying to get into game publishing with just one or two titles, but didn't really last that long uh, as publishers. And so I think that's where that one was. Uh, I believe the, the Gen 13 one was done in our LA studio where we did a lot of cross-platform work. I guess we did that in Seattle too. And the, the RoboCop was done up in the Seattle studio. But yeah, neither of them led to... Uh, successfully led to securing those uh, ultimate game uh, game productions. Okay. Y you guys were also involved in a Magic the Gathering game for the PlayStation, uh, Battle Mage. Were there at any point in time plans of bringing that game over to either the Saturn or maybe the Dreamcast? Uh, no one the Dreamcast. 
And I don't know about the Saturn. It could be at that by that point in time, that would have been one of our later games. By that point in time, the Saturn may have been determined to be the less dominant player on the in the in the console war. So I, I would imagine as time went on, people being only interested in coming out with PlayStation versions rather than Saturn versions. Sure. Uh, don't know if, uh, if you might be more privy to sales figures over time and things like that. Uh, you know, we we're always capable of bringing things to the to the Saturn, but honestly, if we're then making a game as good as it could be on the PlayStation, we'd have to whack it back pretty considerably to get it working on the Saturn. Okay. So the last part of this question is, do you guys have any other games on any platform, console, PC, whatever, or beta versions or other tech demos and unreleased items, or even, you know, source code for specifically for Saturn, or even tools that you guys have been involved in that you'd be interested in sharing with the community, either just basic knowledge about or the actual item? Yeah, sorry to say, I don't have anything. Nothing comes to mind that I have, but everything that I have, I've lost. In the just the ultimate, as I was talking about, archiving things in formats that become obsolete. I would love to have the source code debug to be able to recompile it and run it. Uh, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> yes. Heartbreak. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, honestly... The uh, I think our archives now only go back as far as ten or fifteen years before we don't have um, we don't have things and it's a it's a sore point of contention within the company but you know gosh even if I had some tape backups that we would have been using at that time where could we find uh, the software to do that I, some of my original audio work that I had done in the eighties I still had the source code discs for but the problem was that they were stored in a compressed format and the, the decompressor wasn't available anymore and it took me a couple of years to restore all of that onto a pc and then and then in the move from one office to another one of the people packing things up said boy this pc looks really old i think we ought to get rid of this oh, no. <laughs> oh it just restored all that stuff ouch um but uh um no it's uh, i've in, in hindsight it would have been wonderful too i i never even saved one box of every game we released. I mean, we've got over a hundred consumer titles shipped and I can imagine a display case that would have you know, just this, this ocean of titles that real time associates developed, but it was never important to me at the time to keep the past work. You know, if we got copies, I'd give them to the people who worked on the team, never saving one copy for the oh. company. So for whatever reason, it wasn't important to us at the time to ensure the archives and if we knew then the level of interest that would be available now, perhaps we would have treated it a little differently, but so much loss of time. Does that also include the uh, code translation program for Saturn to PlayStation, like uh, Ratware? Is that what you call it? Rat Beast. Rat Beast. Rat Beast. Yeah, that's that would have been the engine that we used that we would write for, the tool set and the engine that we would write for that would then create the PlayStation or the Saturn version. And yeah, that would include All that. Uh, uh, that would have been part of the source tree for any of those projects. And so that, that engine is not in existence anymore for all oh, that's Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're right. You know, and, and back in the day we would write our own engines and then eventually as new, as engine companies came online, it's not critical for game companies to develop their own engines anymore. So I, uh, I would say Saturn and the PlayStation 1 would have been one of the last times we wrote our own engine. And then after that, we're using commercially available engines, which is what I use now. Oh, we have no real reason to write our own. 
there's a lot of interest in homebrew and translation ports for Saturn and earlier systems. Actually, a bunch of systems, to be perfectly frank. Dreamcast is a huge homebrew library. Do you have any words of wisdom or tips for programming on the Saturn that you'd want people to hear who are actively programming on it right now? Hmm. Um, concentrate on your main loop. What, whatever your game main loop is, that's where all the magic is. And that's, you know, do your render and your game logic and your sounds, and then back to your render game logic and sounds. And you start with the simplest possible game loop and then add features from there as far as developing your engine goes. As far as developing gameplay goes, always be playing it, be uh, tuning it. There was a, another development team, colleagues of mine, called Big Ape. And these guys would, they would get 10% of the game done and then they would play the heck out of it until they were just having so much fun. And then they would write another 10% of the game and then they would play the heck out of it. And the idea of one thing that waterfall development didn't do for us was we would wait to tune it in the end when we're done. Let's build everything, make sure it's all there, then let's tune it as opposed to let's tune it while we're going. So for the creative endeavors, I would say, taste it while you're cooking it. You know, don't, don't wait for it to come out of the oven to see whether or not it's any good. Just stick your finger in the batter while you're making it and, and see what it tastes like. All right, kind of creative iteration. And then, then the last thing, if we're talking about tools and tool development, the turnaround time to testing your work. For us, we were, as developers, always trying to minimize our turnaround time because that compile, link, go process can kill you. And even in modern systems, when we're developing for the iPhone, nobody wants to deal with a five or a 10 minute build time or if you need to make a change and see how that's working. So being able to build in an iterative environment, reducing the amount of time to compile link and go is something that, that's great. Now, of course, a lot of current engines do that, but if you're home doing your homebrew, then uh, make sure you're, you're in a fast iteration place. Uh, incidentally, one of the reasons I think that real-time associates took off the way it did was is that we had a lot of tools that made our teams really productive because we were eliminating those turnaround times, particularly the graphics artists could develop on televisions connected to consoles, connected to their PCs, so that while they're working on the PC, it was actually transmitting it to the console and the TV set so they could see what their result was in real time as opposed to drawing it, needing to give it to a programmer who would need to compile it, who would put it in the game, then you build it and play it to that level. So rapid iteration of your content if you want to really get homebrew and, and you know making in the style, using tools of the style of the day, then those would be the, I think, the three things to, to, uh, to concentrate on. So looking towards the future, are there any projects you're working on currently that you'd like to talk about? Uh, well, absolutely. I'm, uh, I'm currently working in location-based entertainment. As I uh, you know, started in video games in the early 80s, there weren't a lot of people developing it. And so I was able to enjoy uh, growing a company in a, in a new marketplace where there wasn't a lot of other people who were taking command of that domain. And then as the decades went on and there were tens, of, if not hundreds of thousands of people working in it, kind of got crowded out of my own industry. So a few years ago, jokingly said, well, great, I'm just going to go start another industry where there's not a lot of people who are working in it yet. And so I've uh, hopped over to location-based entertainment. And I'm working in, uh, there's a couple of companies that do this, but I'm using a, a new technology that's not available. Uh, location-based entertainment companies such as The Void and Dreamscape are set up where you'll strap a backpack on, you'll put a VR headset on, possibly a few other peripheral sensors, pick up a gun or uh, uh, something to tell where your feet are. 
And then four to six people can enter a custom built out space and walk around in a virtual world. It's totally compelling. And, and, you know, there were as early as the Amiga, we saw what virtual reality could do and how compelling it felt to be in a virtual world. So there's a couple of companies out there that are exploring the spaces, uh, the Void and Dreamscapes for two, for example. So what I'm working on now is in that arena, but it's with what I consider a superior technology. It's much lighter headset, much lighter weight computing device, and you actually can see each other in the simulation instead of only seeing avatars of one another. So it, it truly is like the holodeck from Star nice. Trek where you and a bunch of people walk in and see each other, but you're immersed in a synthetic, a 3D environment. I also describe it as if you had a big screen TV playing your favorite video game, what would it look like if you popped your head in the screen, looked around, then climbed through the TV set and you're standing around in the video game world. And then you ask 10 of your friends to pop in through the TV with you and you're walking around in this video game world. So I'm uh, I'm currently developing that. We've uh, found uh, our first location up in San Francisco that has agreed to host us, Pier 39, uh, wow. a big uh, popular tourist spot up there, 15 million visitors a year. And so we're developing a Alcatraz escape-themed attraction for small groups of people to come in and play with each other in this walk-in video game. That sounds amazing. That's so awesome. Yeah, it's it's a blast. We've got our prototype up and running and I can walk a T-Rex right up to you and he pops his head down and looks at you and you're looking at your friend who's looking at the T-Rex also and and it's like uh, it's it's, it's a great technology. I just have like this grin on my face because of how awesome this sounds. <laughs> In your opinion, what would you say are some of the top Sega Saturn games of all time? Huh. Um, gosh, I'd need to see a list. Uh, there's ones that would stand out, I'm sure, but I'd, I'd be if I only mentioned one or two, I might be forgetting the five that I liked even more. Mm-hmm. Were you a player in the day, or were you just more, more focused on on making the games? I'd play all the big hits. I'd get my hands on them. It wasn't important for me to finish them as much as I was wanting to know what was exciting or new about them. The visual style and the interactions and the gameplay, timing, pacing, things like that. So in the day, I was always playing. Uh, not so much anymore. I'm a more of a casual game player now. I do remember one of my programmers was awesome at Mortal Kombat, and he could cream everybody in the company. And then whenever I would play him, I would win. And I was like, Andy, you're letting me win, aren't you? <laughs> no, no, I'm not. No, you. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure he was letting me win. That's awesome. <laughs> okay, so we try putting you on the spot about like your uh, top three Saturn games. Are you willing to go on record about either the worst Saturn game or even just the worst game that you ever played? Yeah, I wouldn't want to say. Yeah, kind of figured. <laughs> All right. So one came to mind, though. Yeah. One came to mind. Yeah, I kind of had a feeling it would. Maybe we'll have to take that offline. Um, yeah, but I uh, yeah we can take that offline. But I and and I do from time to time, uh, you know, interact with circles who might take a. But sure. We'll, we'll have a laugh about that. Fair enough. Yeah. All right. So, who is your favorite developer outside of uh, Real Time Associates? Well, I love everything that Miyamoto does, touches, breathes upon. Uh, he's. You know, that whatever teams he's running, he gets it in in this magnificent way. I feel he's our apostle or our Beethoven. Mm-hmm. Uh, he really sees things in ways and, and has brought that to so many people. You know, obviously, it's influenced a lot of my work. 
the side scroller did so many of those. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm also a fan of well, Lucas Pope. He used to work at Real Time Associates. He's the developer behind Papers Please, and now the uh, Obra Dinn indie game designer. And this is where I'm going. I love the diversity, the ability for individuals with creative visions to be able to bring them out, uh, no matter how off the well beaten path from traditional published games are that uh, we get to enjoy the the kind of creative forces of of people like that okay lastly we know that there are several listeners that are huge bug fans do you have any special message or any words you'd like to pass along to them oh gosh well i'm super appreciative of anybody who likes the work of that era and era and especially that title we had a blast making it i i hope the fun that we had making it is evident in the way that you enjoy it. Not just it wasn't just a job for us, but but there was a lot of joy and interaction uh, between team members and and just joking around and and great friendships that were made during that era. So thanks for appreciating it, and I love how zany it is, and uh, still have the original character drawing for Bug up on the my office wall. Uh, and and some of the original storyboards for the background styles. But thanks for appreciating what was, for us, absolutely a a labor of love and a a lot of fun and exploring new territories. So thanks, uh, yeah, for for anybody who's out there, thanks. Incidentally, uh, I saw a picture once, a snapshot of a street artist in New York 20 years ago spray painted a big b-52 from bug on a wall somewhere in new york is graffiti art and i thought that was just such a compliment and so amazing i wish i still had a picture of that and i doubt the thing is still up there but but that was uh that was to, to think that something that we did affected somebody in a way for have them go out of their way in their life to do that was was really quite moving so for anybody who appreciates it, it it's you know kind of it's a honored to to, uh, to be in your uh, to, to play part of your recreational time this is going to be a call out now to our listeners to go hunt <laughs> find, down, that, find that find that or photo. else paint another one right yeah. <laughs> all right so i want to thank you dave for joining us for the podcast and being our guest on this episode i thought we talked about a lot of really informative and interesting things and uh, i just want to thank you again for your time well, absolutely. It's an honor to be here. I'm, I'm so glad that there's interest in this and glad to play any part I can and, and bringing as much information out about these what were once pivotal days in game development history. Yeah, and it's definitely really informative to get that, that understanding. I mean, as people that just pop in these games and we play them back in the day, it's like we don't have that understanding. So it's really cool to, to get that from you. So thank you again. Absolutely. My pleasure. Okay, guys, wow. I just, you know, totally love it. There's so many amazing stories that come out of this. And, you know, it's always fun to learn, you know, what went down in that time period from the people that actually lived it. And I I realize that this was reported on before, but I certainly wasn't aware that Bug was initially going to be a Sonic the Hedgehog title that would have been ready for the American launch of the machine. Like, that just blows my mind. That would have potentially changed, you know, 
the fortunes of the of the Saturn itself. So to me, that was huge. Yeah, I didn't know that either. I mean, it's it's just insane that there's two, not only one but two canceled Sonic games for the Saturn. And did you like? I mean, so in playing Bug, and I've played through the game quite recently. I definitely had that that vibe that there were. It was like there was a bit of Sonic in there. I felt, you know, and this was before. Obviously, I I, I knew that it was initially going to be Sonic, and so there's definitely a piece of, uh, I guess, the soul of Sonic. It it still sort of you know exists in that game in some some capacity, anyway. Yeah, definitely. There was a lot of. I really love the insight that he really got about the development in the '90s because I love like I'm a programmer and I love hearing about programmers back in the day and like that development cycle because i'm used to my processes and the industry standard but i mean there was no like youtube there's no uh web page on how to run a development team or how a development team should run back in the day so yeah really it's it's amazing and to think that uh you know when they received their saturn hardware you know the hardware was still being revised none of the documentation was translated or if it was it was really badly translated and so you know each time a new revision would come along he mentioned that they had to sort of essentially stop sort of figure it out before they can continue so it it just you know it was the wild west of programming it's certainly nothing like what it is today and that's just it's so cool to hear stories like that yeah for sure i I really enjoyed enjoyed those, and uh, yeah, I think the funniest one I also liked was the Steven Spielberg one that had a look. The Steven Spielberg story is pretty good too. Yeah, where uh, he was given a tour of the uh, Sega booth, and they showed him Bug, and he was like, you know, supremely impressed by Bug. And I mean, you know, good good on Dave Warhol and his team for putting out a product that obviously, you know, during the day looked so amazing, and to have somebody like Steven Spielberg look at that and say, "Wow, this is going to be." you know, the game that drives, you know, the sales of the Saturn. Like, that's pretty awesome. That's awesome. (laughs) And then, of course, you also had the Wing Commander on the Saturn that almost uh, was a thing. Yeah, like, and and see, that's the thing. Like, I mean, so the Saturn ended up with about roughly 250 commercially released games in the West, both in, in North America and in Europe, even though the libraries were slightly different. But it makes you wonder, like, could there have been, you know, 300, 400, you know, potentially games that had all of them gone through their complete development cycle? How many would we really have ended up with? And, and definitely Wing Commander would have been one of them. So that's that's pretty awesome. That's, that's neat to hear. And then Rat Beast. Like, man, I wish they would have had a copy of Rat Beast. That would have been so much fun to work with. Yeah. And the acronym Real Time Associates 32 bit engine and support tools. Like, I love that. That I think that's super cool. And it's, you know, when, when uh, David mentioned that it's, it's long lost and they don't have it anymore, I, I know all of us thought, you know, oh man, could you imagine having, you know, an engine that would allow you to transfer code from Saturn to PlayStation and vice versa? That's awesome. And, and to think that, you know, Real Time, this is their creation. They created this, they coded this, they used this. I think that's awesome. I think that's super awesome. Oh, yeah, totally. I think I'm using the word super awesome way too much. I'm going to have to edit that. Super special awesome is the word you should be using. Gotcha. Super (laughs) special awesome. Okay. I may or may not have ripped that off from a famous YouTube bridge series. No problem. No problem. It will sound original and fresh coming from, from us. So. That's right. I'm good. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much for listening to us, guys. And a very special thank you to our guests, of course, Dave Warhol from Real Time Associates 
and Pandemonium for the news section. I think you guys are being on the cast. It was a pleasure having you guys on. In a future cast, we're going to be talking much more in depth with uh, Nick from Pandemonium. And so that's something I'm really looking forward to. We would have, in all honesty, done it in this cast, but as it is, this is our longest cast ever. So thank you for sticking with us throughout this whole uh, two and a half hours. We certainly hope that you've enjoyed it. One thing that I've got uh, coming up fairly shortly here is in conjunction with us talking with Dave at Realtime Associates, I ended up going through and playing the entire original bug game. And I put together a really in-depth article, not just about the game, but also what went into making the game, the backstory with Sonic the Hedgehog, and so on and so forth. So that's going to be dropping fairly uh, soon. And uh, I hope that uh, you enjoy the article. And on top of that, we're going to also be at PRGE in October, or Portland Retro Gaming Expo. It's a really amazing show. Yeah, definitely. We're going to have Ben, Kay, and Peter will be there. Looking forward to it. I, you know, it's it's always fun to come out for shows like this, and you know, it's it's not often that we get to meet each other in person, and so for me, anyways, it'll be a first time meeting Kay as well as Ben. So I absolutely look forward to that. Yeah. So uh, thank you for listening, guys, and uh, remember, you must, you absolutely must, you absolutely positively must play Sega Saturn because it's really awesome. No, it's super special awesome. I stand corrected. Super duper duper special. It's the best. Beats the rest. All right, and this is Nick. This is the spot where we all start singing. So if you want to start, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) I've been in this town so long. So long to the city. We should definitely do a stream of that for the uh, the new movie coming out. Oh, yep. We definitely should. You could add in our own sound effects. We could have do like acapella sound effects to it. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll have a, we'll have each of us do. I'll do sound effects that be like pew, pew, pew. Right. And then we can have you sing the theme for Star Wars. 
right right dun, 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 like or whatever other <laughs> yeah and i be can great. and then we could get somebody else to be the annoyed fan be like i hate that <laughs> <laughs> the book was better <laughs> oh, oh that's funny Anyways, 